You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Most any place can seem to be a paradise. While you embrace just the one that you adore. There needn't be with magic powers You need no garden filled with flowers To taste the thrill of sweet, sweet hours Gentle perfume And cushions that are silk and soft Two in the gloom That is silent but for sighs That's paradise and lips are kissing But if there's something missing That signifies trouble in paradise Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining you once again is Ms. Paula Guthett. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Also back with us is Mr. Ken Stanley. Hello, Mike. It's great to be back. And joining us is Mr. Lutz Backer. It's a pleasure to be here with this August crew. This week on The Projection Booth, we are starting the first of two episodes about the work of Ernst Lubitsch and focusing on his film Trouble in Paradise. The film stars Herbert Marshall as Gaston, a gentleman thief who initially connects with Lily, played by Marion Hopkins, a highly skilled pickpocket, before the two begin the long con with Madame Mariette Colette, played by Kay Francis, the owner of a Parisian perfume company. Unfortunately for Gaston and Lily and Madame Colette, things aren't so easy when it comes to the fleecing. This film is 87 years old this year, but I'm still going to encourage that people watch it before listening to the discussion as you don't want anything about this delightful film ruined for you because it's kind of as fresh today as it was in 1932. Paula, when was the first time you saw Trouble in Paradise and what did you think? Um, I saw it a few years ago on Turner Classic Movies, of course, and I just really loved it. I thought it was a delightful comedy, a little bit naughty, not overly so. And I really like Herbert Marshall. I think it was one of the first films I saw with Herbert Marshall in it. It has a very light tone, but it's also poignant in a way. And I think we can talk more about that later. How about you, Ken? I'd seen bits and pieces of it probably uh, on TCM or something. Uh, it wasn't available I think it was uh, banned for quite a while, and it wasn't available to the public till I think, 2003 or something. I'd caught bits and pieces, but this is one of these discs that I bought in the Criterion Collection sale, the 50% off sale, and I had it lying around for a while. So I didn't really watch it for the first time all the way through until recently in preparation for this podcast. So what did you think when you finally saw it? Uh, it was a delight. <laughs> it was just really very charming, and uh, by that point I'd gotten to – seen more Lubitsch films and his uh, high early peak of the sound era for him. How about you, Lutz? Uh, it was new to me as well. Bits and pieces. I remember the opening, seeing the opening scene in mm -hmm. particular at some point along my career. But I found it really, the first time through now, I found it really kind of challenging. You have to really pay attention. And uh, it really all fell into place sort of on the second. And yet still, when I watched the third time, there were still things that I hadn't caught the first the first two times. So, I but now I really love it. I think it is a jewel of a film. It's terrific. 
I saw this one in college. Uh, I had a really strange professor, uh, Professor Ukadake, who came to us from, I think it was London, but he, he came to us from Africa to London to the Bronx to Michigan. And so he had one of the most unusual accents I've ever heard in my huh. entire life because it mixed all of those things together. And he was the first person to expose me to Ernst Lubitsch. And my God, did I fall in love with this film. I just couldn't get enough of it. And it's one of those movies I had a, some friends over a few months ago and was talking about how we we're going to do this podcast. And neither one of them had heard of Ernst Lubitsch. And I was like, you need to watch this movie. And I was so glad that they sat there and laughed and had such a good time at yeah. this thing that, like I said before, is from 1932. And it plays as fresh today as it did back then. And I was... I was so happy. I felt like I really made the right decision by us doing this episode. <laughs> so that opening is fantastic. The way that we are going to get our expectations subverted all the time through this movie and yeah. that we start with this garbage can being picked up and then we find that it's not just a regular garbage man in a regular street, that it's this gondolier who's now – with this garbage scowl and then starts to sing O Sol Mio and turning this, what should be the most romantic place in the world, Venice into, you know, here's this guy <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, doing this romantic thing, this gondolier, but he's carrying garbage to his destination. Yeah. And I love that O Sol Mio is going to be one of our two major audio motifs that we have through here. We we're talking a little bit before that this was not necessarily one of the first uh, sound films that Lubitsch had, had done. He had already done a bunch of sound stuff, but there are so many audio cues in here and so much play with words. But then at the same time, Lutz, you were saying that you have to pay attention to this movie because yeah. there are things that are happening in dialogue, but there are so many things that are happening just visually that it is a wonderful, yeah. wonderful film. It, it begins with the title sequence. Right. It, uh, the title card, the initial title card says Trouble in and then in the background, there's a, a illustration of a bed before the word paradise pops yeah. up. So you yeah. see trouble in bed, then paradise comes up. Yeah. And then in the credit sequence itself, the music, which I think is a subtle touch, is a tango. Mm -hmm. In the, uh, the Trouble in Paradise, the theme song is this tango. And tango tends to suggest certain things, like, you know, specifically Trouble in Paradise. Tango is kind of like a contentious dance. To a certain extent, is a very dramatic, formalized. very formalized, dramatic dance. Mm -hmm. So you're already seeing these elements that are very subtle, but they're in there, and it sets the stage. I guess before we dive right into it, we should probably talk. You mentioned that this was a uh, pre-code film, or it was. I guess maybe the code was around, but it wasn't really being enforced very much because we talked about that a little bit when uh, we had uh, a discussion about uh, the Black Cat a few years ago, and that was made. After the Hayes Code had come into effect, but it wasn't really um, enforced until a certain point. Sounds like Paula's champing at the bit. For this one. <laughs> I'm not really champing at the bit, but I I um I have looked into pre-code quite a bit over my time in the I don't know um, movie buff mode lifestyle. Um, and pre-code usually refers to the time between when the studios agreed to self-censor themselves and put the don'ts and be carefuls together and the time when the code was actually enforced right. 1934. Yeah. So in that time, 
arguably movies didn't get any worse. I think they kind of were like, this is our last stand (laughs) and we're going to throw everything in the kitchen sink in. Um, But some people say that movies were no worse between, say, 1930 and 1934 than they had been. Uh, Censorship took place across the country at different rates or different in different styles, different states censored like local censor boards would cut films to the acceptability of that region. Right. Yeah. There's so a in, really good documentary out there now called Sickies Making Movies. Uh, oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's from uh, Baltimore and I guess it was – Baltimore. Yeah. Baltimore, it, <laughs> even though you've got John Waters making movies there. I was going to say there, hello, yeah, John Waters. Yeah. I mean he was pretty much like the last stand against their homegrown mm-hmm. censorship yeah. board because yeah. I think they're the last state to mm-hmm. have a, a regional censorship board versus – Yeah, and his first couple of films were banned exactly. by <laughs> Yeah. Um, so it – I mean and it kind of persists to this day. There's some stuff that's acceptable on the coast that is not acceptable say here in the Midwest or whatever. Right. But they don't go so far as to cut films. Mm-hmm. And yeah. incidentally, that's why when you have African-American performers, they're generally at this time in movie history not – and, and well into the 50s, weren't integrated into the story, but in a separate scene of their own. So it could be caught for mm. Southern audiences. So that's really sad. And I'm glad those are being put back in. Right. Um, so people like the Nicholas brothers who deserve to be super famous, mm. their sequences were cut out of, say, a dance film or, mm. or what have you, nightclub scenes or whatever. Um, so basically, like the Catholic and... Um, Eventually, the Protestant denominations of Christianity got really upset about what was in movies and the ways that they were leading people astray, uh, particularly children. Studios didn't want a rating system mm-hmm. for whatever reason. So that was, you know, nixed and they came up with the don'ts and be carefuls in 1927. And so just real briefly, profanity you know, you can't say Jesus or Jesus Christ unless you're in church. <laughs> you know, God, you have to be in church. Um, no licentious or um, suggestive nudity, which to me, licentiousness and suggestiveness are very subjective. So uh, it can be in fact or in silhouette. No illegal drugs. Um, no reference to sexual perversion. No reference to white slavery. Those are the actual words used, white slavery. Um, I can't say this word, so I'm just going to say they they couldn't show a sexual relationship between races. Oh, miscegenation. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> um, and you couldn't show venereal disease. You should, couldn't show childbirth, children's sex origin, organs. Like I don't know who is <laughs> – Showing that anyway. Um, Sounds like something the clergy would be into. Actually. Well, and then, yeah, and, then the, <laughs> and the next item was you couldn't ridicule the clergy. Oh, okay. Okay. And then you couldn't willfully offend any nation, race, or creed. So uh, that last one was kept on going um, arguably till the present day. So I don't really know how, how many people were paying attention to the, paying attention to these don'ts and be carefuls. And then the be carefuls were the flag, don't offend – other nations. Which we'll talk about more in our next episode. <laughs> right. Um, you can't show arson, firearms, no too, de- too detailed depictions of theft, robbery, any type of crime because they thought people would get ideas of how to actually do crimes, this murder, list is going smuggling. I know. I mean, it's going on and on and on. You couldn't show hangings. Um, uh, police interrogation methods because, you know, then, then people get ideas how to get around that. Um, you couldn't show sympathy for criminals. There's no sedition. 
I'm all for this one, cruelty to children and animals. I still don't think that's necessary, but it still was happening. Branding, the prostitution, rape, first night scenes, like on hmm. couples on their honeymoons. Okay. Uh, uh, any man and, and woman in bed together, hence the twin beds that persisted to the 50s. Surgery, any type of drugs, uh, even like prescription drugs. And um, excessive or lustful kissing hmm. when one character is the villain. Right. And there's other things in there, but I mean, there that's like the top. That, wasn't there? That's the yeah. highlight. It was like what, three seconds or something? Well, at <laughs> this point, it was any. Oh, okay. And, and excessive oh, right. was not defined. Excuse me. I was under the, the understanding, or I had heard somewhere or other, that Lubitsch had more of a longer leash than mm-hmm. most other filmmakers. He did, he was yeah. All the licentiousness that takes place mm-hmm. in his films, for one thing, he got away it all takes place in Europe. And yeah, the thinking yeah. is that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Well, American audiences can always look at this and say, well, it's those crazy Europeans, you know. Yeah. And that's they're true. like, they're naughty as all hell, you know, oh, yeah. so they can get away with that stuff. And his reputation as being a sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and also his stuff sold. Right. Yeah. And it was very popular as well. So he was given a longer leash when it comes to dealing with the uh, mm-hmm. pre code code, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And he had been an actor. So I think that gave him the uh, the insight on how he could. Get around, get around yes. nuance and yeah. finesse. Yeah, like, yeah, we're not going to yeah. show them in bed, but we'll show the doors closing. We'll show the door that both of these characters are behind. We'll know what's mm-hmm. going on, but that we can't a necessarily key say component it. of the Lubitsch touch, so mm-hmm. to speak, mm-hmm. is the implication yeah, is the nuance, right? Is the finesse mm-hmm. of yep. uh, material that's racy, right? Enforcement really varied. Depending mm-hmm. on the power of the studio, if I'm on the matrix, I'd easier oh, yeah. time to get away with things. And on the skills by the screenwriters right. uh, as well. You know, Arthur Lawrence told me that with Cot, he was having trouble. Uh, and he knew that he was having trouble because he didn't know all the ins and outs of manipulating it in such right. a way. Divorce was a big thing in, in, in Cot. But just like in B movies, a lot of the limitations that the B filmmakers faced forced them to be be creative. As far as Mm -hmm. budget and such. In terms of budget and whatnot, forced them to be creative in different ways. I imagine that uh, the limitations that the code enforced on filmmakers forced them to be creative in ways that they expressed these Mm -hmm. ideas, even if they couldn't literally show something that was looked down upon by the, the code, they could suggest it. Right. Well, you look at something. I mean, the the one thing that always comes to my mind when it comes to criminals getting away with it is uh, Howard Hawks's Scarface and just the way that they had to shoehorn in that weird scene at the end mm. to show that he uh, was paying Pain. for his crimes. Yeah. Right. And in this, I mean, our two main characters are criminals and they get away with it scot-free. Not yep. only do they get away with it, but they have a huge you know, bundle of money, the purse that cost 125,000 francs and those pearls, who knows how much those cost. I mean, they get away scot-free, not a problem. We don't get that shoe, shoehorn mm-hmm. scene in there of them and being getting, carted off to jail. Right, exactly. Interpol coming in and, <laughs> and taking them away. I think, too, um, there's two things about that. Number one is property crime. Mm-hmm. And there was no murder involved Kay Francis will get over her broken heart. Yeah. And the second thing is um, I see a thread in films of this time of sort of a Robin Hood theme 
It's during the Depression. Oh, yeah. These are wealthy people. They can afford to be ripped off. And it's a little bit of, you know, robbing the rich to give to the poor. It's a theme. The jewel robbery is the one I always think of. Kay Francis is in that one as well. William Powell is the jewel thief. Um, and he's shown as, uh, you know, relieving these fabulously wealthy people of their gems with the aid of, of marijuana cigarettes. And, um, so, <laughs> right. And that got by too. And I see this theme. I'm blanking on a lot of the ones, but it, you see it up until even in Stagecoach 1939, the bad guy, the one that's on the run with the money, spoilers for Stagecoach, uh, is uh, he's a banker mm-hmm. and he's got a suitcase full of stolen money. Hmm. My man Godfrey, another William Powell, yep. similar time frame. The wealthy people are shown to be just idiots who oh, can't yeah. handle their money. And I, I think that helps too, mm-hmm. that sort of the rich – Landed us in this mess. They can spare their money. Well, Trouble in Paradise in particular is we think of Lubitsch and he's the progenitor of rom-com and screwball comedy, you know, to a certain extent. And you can apply the drawing room comedy right. tag on this film as Comedy well. of manners. Comedy mm-hmm. of manners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but this is, uh, along with all that other stuff, specifically uh, Depression-era comedy. Mm. And... The studios, the way that I think that there was the idea, the thought in the Hollywood community is that we have to let the little people have an opportunity to, you know, uh, get some, you know, some live vicariously. Yeah. Live vicariously. It's, it, it and express two, their frustration. It serves two functions yeah. the Depression era comedy. One is uh, let them blow off some steam, give the audience uh, rich people to rail against. And at the same time, live vicariously through the uh, fancy decor and mansions. Mm-hmm. So you can mm-hmm. like either fantasize while watching the movie about how it would be to live so wealthy and have such nice opulence mm-hmm. and everything in your life. And at the other side, uh, at the same time, on the other hand, also rail against the the wealth. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Well, it's nice though that Kay Francis isn't held up in ridicule. There are a couple silly things, trite things that she does. The whole thing mm-hmm. with the purse where she sees it and is like, "Oh, that's much too expensive." And then the other one is one hundred twenty five thousand francs. The first one I think was what five thousand or something. And it's like, "Oh, but it's so beautiful," and she has to mm-hmm. get that purse. But she's not a, a laughing stock, you know. She, and she's the one who protects the workers from getting their wages cut through kind of this interesting way where she's just like, well, I don't know anything about business, but we should probably let those wages stay. Well, one thing I've noticed about Lubitsch in general is that I don't think I've seen, and like I said, I told you earlier, Mike, that I I'd watched 15 of his films in preparation for this podcast, and I don't think in any of those films do I see anybody, any character, really, mm-hmm. that I just, oh, God, I hate that guy. Right, right. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone yeah. seems to be treated as mm-hmm. kind of a humanistic almost altruistic vision that he has as cynical as some of the characters are and as snarky as some of the Mm -hmm. uh, dialogue is you still get the impression that there's not really a bad person they may be following a a bad ideology they may be following a bad uh, road path or something but inherently the people are not they can all be salvaged and he doesn't make anybody into a a supervillain of any kind right 
there's two quote unquote villains in here, Francois Philippe, but he is basically just held up for ridicule. Um, God, Edward Everett Horton is one of my favorite Always. people yeah. of all times. And then, uh, what is it? Adolphe Giron, who is a, the white collar criminal, the guy who is stealing. He, he is actually stealing from Madame Colette and he again kind of gets away with it at the end, but mm-hmm. you know he's he's the only real bad person. But to your point, I don't hate him. I'm not right. saying that. Oh, the major's a little stuffy. Oh yeah, the major's very stuffy. <laughs> but aside from that, there's nobody that you know you want to. Right, you don't want to strangle anyone. You don't want to strangle anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Let's. I was curious. You you did some research on the background of these films. What went into making Trouble in Paradise? I don't want to put you on the spot or anything. I, I'm not the <laughs> right lead in there. Okay. But, uh, because I wanted to talk about the difference in Lubitsch's arrival in 1922, 23 mm-hmm. for Rosita, which, by the way, has been restored by UCLA. There's a mm. f- fabulous new brand available now of that. Well, that was the one, wasn't that the one that, uh, I'm trying to remember who starred in that. Um, Pickford. Was it Pickford? And mm-hmm. she didn't, yes. she didn't like that film, well, is that right? No, she mm. didn't like it at all. Okay. And she only saved one reel of it. Oh, wow. And so they had to go to other sources, which helped things out. Right. Yeah, yeah, she was very selective in what she saved. Okay. She brought in Lubitsch because Lubitsch was the star director in Europe of the time and mm-hmm. she'd gone on our honeymoon in uh, in 1920 and she had sort of case to see about who's the big the big one and uh, he had some success with his with his big uh, uh, spectac- spectacle films that, that he made like Madame Dubarry and mm-hmm. she wanted Lubitsch and to to really raise herself to another level and to, to push against that Character that she had been, and that she was now getting of the of the the lovable child, right? And then that that she, she thought, no longer could carry. She thought Lubitsch could give her a little bit of sex appeal, right? He was persuaded to come over, and I'm sure the money must have been uh, pretty attractive. The other one coming uh, uh, four years, four or five years later, was F. W. Murnau, who by then had, along with Fritz Lang, had sort of taken over the position of being a big artist, star, Mm -hmm. director in Europe. And both of them had been disciples of Max Reinhardt with Lubitsch really getting the ability to stage these vast mass spectacle scenes that he, they were so prominent in those in those early uh, films, from Max Reinhardt, who was a master of that on the stage, had these huge stages in Berlin and in Vienna to work with. One wonders about the stylistic differences in terms of their staging action and in terms of their editing techniques mm-hmm. that are so quite markedly different between the two. The elliptical style that Lubitsch shows in his work uh, is really influenced by American tendencies towards that. How can we show this in the quickest, the most efficient way possible? And then along comes Mornar with The Last Laugh, which was his first international hit, where not only does he get by without any dialogue, uh, he also moves the camera Constantly, mm-hmm. which goes directly against that earlier t- tendency. 
Lubitsch, by the way, along with John Ford and a bunch of other major uh, Hollywood directors, as soon as The Last Laugh and, and Sunrise became prominent using the mobile camera, they jumped in and made a long, a long take mobile camera movement, and so did uh, Lubitsch. Eternal Love okay. is the one where he has a very fast moving camera technique. But then we, you know, we go to 1932 in Trouble in Paradise, and it's all elliptical and all uh, mostly static compositions against the background that shows significant other action. So he, he does work with uh, depth, and he relates things to the background. But there's a lot of editing bringing in cuts to objects right. all the time. That's one of his stylistic trademarks. And, lot, and cutting between people's facial ex expressions. And so going into a close-up, a very prominent in his films, is this Lubitsch going with the flow Mm -hmm. of going, adopting the tendencies in the current editing styles uh, to his purposes, bending them to his purposes, and eschewing the mobile camera. Mm -hmm. You know, possibly does he want does he want to differentiate himself from from that tendency that was really strong in the late twenties and into early sound period with people like Mamoulian uh, and Lewis Milestone, for instance, in the front page uh, or Rain, if you've ever seen those. His con camera constantly moves. I see Lubitsch as being kind of uh, sui generis in that uh, I, I was really shocked when in preparation for this podcast i watched several silent films that he had directed yeah. in germany and it seemed like he was doing stuff that no one else was thinking of doing mm -hmm. i really don't think he was i'm sure that there was some influence upon him from his theatrical background max reinhardt yeah. And, yeah. and you see uh the thought the idea of uh a theater cropping up and different the characters playing different roles whether they be criminals or whether they be actors or whatever, there's that type of, but that's more of a narrative influence. As far as the filmmaking technique goes, I think he was, it seemed to me anyhow, that he was just doing what he felt was he wanted to do for that particular moment, that particular scene, that particular film. Now, uh, there is a very elaborate tracking shot at the beginning of Trouble in Paradise. It's mm -hmm. not too long into the film. Mike was talking about the, the garbage gondolier. Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, as an aside, I spent a day in Venice five years ago. And it's the most absolutely gorgeous place I've ever been to in my life. But the Grand Canal, uh -huh. wonderful, majestic. you just like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. When you get on a boat or a, gon a gondola, the smell. Oh, yeah. It, it is an open sewer. Everyone <laughs> says that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And don't go in the summer. Right. Don't go in the summer. <laughs> it is an open sewer. And I think that that's probably, Lubitsch being very European, he probably, mm -hmm. that was the impression he took with him right. of his experience in Venice is, it is an open sewer out here. How can I express that right. as in counterpoint to the romantic image? Right. Well, and the smell of that versus the perfume of Paris, that we're going to get that nice contrarose right. yes, as well. Sure. But yeah. but I wanted to, to, to elaborate on that opening sequence because – Oh, God, yeah. That it, opening it go, sequence it, is so rich in so many filmmaking techniques. And it leads to – okay, we, we have this, this little sequence with the uh, garbage. Yep. And uh, that leads to a shot of two ladies speaking in Italian, mm -hmm. knocking on a door and ringing a doorbell. Right. And none of this, this stuff for, is subtitled, which I really right, appreciate about Not subtitled. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to 
a shot of a, of a man jumping out of a window <laughs> inside yeah. and then removing a disguise. And then, uh, if I remember the chronology of this correctly, uh, Edward Everett Horton comes to, and then a very elaborate tracking shot, pretty long, I'd say, like uh, maybe 20, 25, 30 seconds or something like that. Well, that's the, that's the model shot. Oh, that's a model shot. Yeah, yeah, going okay. all around the building to the Goes around the building. until we pick up the window. And then yeah. Herbert Marshall talks to his butler and preparing the dinner that he's having. Yes. The butler says, uh, what, what should we do to start with? And he says, beginnings are always difficult. Yes. And that's kind of like, it seems to me like at that moment, it's kind of like uh, he's talking to the audience saying, hold on, beginnings are always difficult. So you Stick piece, with me. you yeah. got to piece all this stuff together. Right. Don't worry. It's coming. It's right. coming. Yeah. <laughs> and and that, But that's a trait that goes on because you could say the same thing about the beginning of To Be or Not To Be, mm-hmm. the way that right. starts. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the next year, Design for Living, he, mm-hmm. he has a scene and Miriam Hopkins walks in a train and it's about five minutes before any English is spoken. Mm-hmm. The characters are Gary Cooper and Frederick March are asleep. She's sketching them. Gary Cooper wakes up. And he starts talking French. And so you're saying, what are they saying to each other? What's going on here? Beginnings are always difficult. And I think that that's something that he suggests about the relationships between the characters. Their relationships start out and they don't know. They're deceiving. They're deceptive. The characters are deceptive. Mm -hmm. They interact. They're actors. Everybody's fronting. Everybody's fronting. That is the impetus for the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. is to get these resolutions is to resolve these misunderstandings, mischaracterizations, and that's the point of the movie. But remember, beginnings are always difficult. Yeah. Right. Well, and apropos of that, Raphael's on the screenwriter, uh, recalled that it took him two days to come up with that opening scene. And, oh, uh, yeah. and Lubitsch wanted something different. He didn't want to come in with his gorgeous shot of the canals and the buildings in the background. He wanted to come up with something that would really define the film. That was and be able to cut, come back to later on at mm. appropriate moments. That seems to be the the what the Lubitsch touch is. Yes, yes. Is how else can I do this? Right. What is the cliche? What's the convention? So I I'll know what that is. So I don't do that and find some other way, no matter how elaborate. To go against the convention, to go yeah. against the type. And, and t- they took their time doing that when they were writing the script. Mm-hmm. And there was, there was one thing I forgot to mention about this Murnau, Lubitsch dichotomy, and that is that there was different in so many ways, but they both were very strict about putting everything into the script and precisely visualized mm-hmm. it, similar to what Hitchcock did a, did a, did a bit later. And to do that, uh, effectively, they had to have a very strong collaboration with their production designer or art director. Mm-hmm. And so, Morna had Rojos Klise, whom he brought from Germany and, and who went back to Germany to do all those fantastic pre-visualizations and building the sets accordingly in order to do them. Lubitsch at Hans Stryer. Uh, I don't know how many films he made with him, but he, uh, he certainly worked on this one and it worked very well with, uh, Making the set sort of a a backdrop, a, a living space right. for the drama, and that said, Madame Collet's uh, house was sixty oh, yeah. percent of the of the screen time, and so mm-hmm. it was a. In particular, she has a desk in uh, 
I think the secretary's room. Right. I want that desk. It's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> it's Art Deco. I wonder but who it's got it after young. the movie was done. It's the well, very also high Art Deco. Oh yeah. Also Bauhaus in there. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that space contrasts so well with the hotel room that Gaston is in at the beginning, and just how overly baroque that is. Mm-hmm. And just. I mean, we get to explore that space in some interesting ways. The conversation that he's having with the waiter and then mostly when he's talking with Lily and that she will continuously move and she'll move out of frame and, and he has to come in after her. And I found it very interesting the way that they did that and that they're cross cutting those scenes with Horton down in the lobby talking to the, the concierge or the manager yeah. and that whole thing of Horton telling his really simple and kind of silly story about showing his tonsils to Gaston and the way that then the manager has to turn to all the other people and translate it into Italian. He's so, you know, like so excited when he's telling this story and stuff. And uh, just, I love the way that that goes back and forth between those two and just the, 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 the interactions with Gaston and Lily are just wonderful. And her putting, you know, we're talking about how everyone's putting on a front and he's already, Gaston has already pretended to be a doctor and now she's pretending to be much more than she is. And when she's telling this really elaborate story about how the, you know, the Marquis will tell the Marquise and this and that. And when she gets that phone call and we find out who she really is, which I think we already pretty much knew in our yeah, hearts that yeah. she was putting yeah, out Yeah, the story a is just show. too elaborate. Oh, yeah. You know? Come on, lady. She gets that phone call and that woman just sitting there all slumped over on the bed or whatever and just like you'll never believe what your dog did <laughs> so, so nice to undercut her in that way but undercutting her without denigrating it's not mean spirit yeah. exactly it's not mean he's never mean i don't think any of this stuff is no, mean spirit. He's, no he's never mean and, and that's nice too I mean, exactly you know. And even when it comes to, you know, the, so much of this movie is going to be about love triangles and we never feel like, you know, maybe we'll, and we'll talk about the end of it that, uh, you know, Madame Colette is, is a great person, but it, this isn't like a modern day romance where, you know, it's like, oh, there's no way that Meg Ryan can be with Bill Pullman because, oh, he's got allergies or something horrendous <laughs> like that. How dare he have allergies? She's got to end up with the other guy. She doesn't want to live with this guy who sniffles in this. Madame Colette and, it's and down Lily to the end. are fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And they you don't know what he's going to do. Right. Yeah. Right. You don't know. But God, the and romance. It would have been fine. Oh, yeah. It would have been fine either way. Exactly. No, I was surprised when I saw the end. And every that's time the mark of a good like, film. Yeah. It takes a lot to go. surprise me. And then when they reveal each other to themselves who they are, Lily and, and Gaston. I mean, we have had all this movement all over the place, but them just sitting at that table, having that conversation, calling each other out, and when they start to reveal what they have stolen from one another, that is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, yeah, I love really when Herbert Marshall yeah. takes her by the shoulders and shakes her. <laughs> and, <laughs> and his wallet falls, falls out. out. Of her dress. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, fantastic. The things they do in that scene, they're, oh, they're yeah. not really possible. Right. It's like magic. Right. You know, you can't understand how you got the garter. Right. This <laughs> is the garter. <laughs> Baron, you are a crook. You robbed the gentleman in 253, 5, 7, and 9. May I have the soap? Please. Thank you. Countess, believe me, before you left this room, I would have told you everything. And let me say this with love in my heart. Countess, you are a thief. The wallet of the gentleman in 253, 5, 7, and 9 is in your possession. I knew it very well when you took it out of my pocket. In fact, you tickled me. 
that your embrace was so sweet. I like you, Baron. I'm crazy about you. By the way, your pin. Thank you, Baron. Not at all. There's one very good stone in it. What time is it? It was five minutes slow, but I regulated it for you. I hope you don't mind if I keep your garter. We've got each other figured out. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a big relief. And right. The fact that she jumps into his arms and starts oh, kissing yeah. him and saying, I love you, after <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, good. you know. It's, it's a match made in heaven, though. Yeah. 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 They're both scoundrels. Yes. Yeah. Lovable scoundrels. <laughs> Lovable scoundrels. And yeah, Herbert Marshall, oh my God. He... Do I have time for a quick Herbert Marshall yeah, please. factoid? Yeah, go right ahead. He served in World War One and actually lost his leg. That thing of him running up the stairs, I had no idea that uh -huh. that was a body double the whole time. Because that yeah. is such a recurring motif in this mm -hmm. film. They made it work. But, he, um, with such, he, he floats through the film. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's the height of elegance. I know. And so knowing that he had a wooden leg is amazing. It's kind of yeah. The yeah. British, they're so British. <laughs> well, it had a real impact on the on the style of the film because mm -hmm. it forced him to always cut when he begins just as it begins walking and then cut to where he arrives. Right. You know, the cutaway technique and if you watch the film just paying attention to that, you'll uh, find. I didn't see it. Yeah. See, I, I, I didn't, I didn't, see it the first I didn't time. notice it. Yeah, the first time I didn't notice it either. Cuz I didn't know about Herbert Marshall's he leg. Himself with such yeah. style and sophistication uh -huh. yeah. and yeah. that you he, just I mean, he had a long notice. career after that. Yeah. He had a long the only career. Time, the only time you actually see him walking is in that garden party scene. Mm. And he keeps it to uh, it's a, me a medium shot. Right. So we don't see the leg part. He seemed to have sort of a sailor walk, mm -hmm. sort of a slouching. And, and, it's uh, a saunter. And he, may he has fun with him running up and down the staircase at oh, yeah. uh, ever faster pace, you know, which is <laughs> well, a double, of course. There's one, yeah. one moment where he walks inside and then he almost immediately goes up the stairs like – it would be impossible, and it is impossible. It yeah. is the the double, but it was kind of nice knowing that now and watching it again and being like, "Oh yeah, no wonder he can hit the staircase that fast yeah. because that's not him." No, no, <laughs> and no the other no, guy no, in the wings. Yeah. It's a real fast cut. There. That was nice. Yeah, there's there's the one case where where he's with uh, with uh, Mariette, mm -hmm. and they're going to sit on this. It's near the end where they're going to sit on the sofa, and you have to really look careful. There's a cut between the two shots of her sitting down mm -hmm. that almost match, and it goes by so quickly that you think it, you think it's all one take, mm. and it was all one shot, and it was done so we could jump him from where he starts out to the sitting down, oh, so okay. we don't see him walking. Nice, and you do that. You know, it, it's it's got to affect your fluidity if you can't follow your your characters freely when they go from A to B. The whole pace of the film was affected by that. Mm. So that's so, another way that he's yeah. just a master. Yeah, mm. I almost wish I didn't know. I don't tell <laughs> I don't tell people anymore because then they'll just watch for that. But I'll have to watch for that shot you just described. Yeah. Yeah, and Madame Colette, her introduction is also nice. We, you know, we again we kind of subvert expectations the way that we see the Eiffel Tower, and then we find out that that's actually a logo. You know, it's kind of rem reminiscent of the RKO logo, yeah. and then going into that radio commercial, which is then cross cut with billboards and different advertisements, yeah. and just this nice song. I mean, I think this was was this the first non-musical that he was doing after a while because when he you were talking before about him doing the big spectacles yeah. and once sound came in he jumped feet first into musicals yeah. i think this might have been his first 
one after that. I believe so. Okay. And, but yet we still have, I mean, the Trouble in Paradise song is great. I talked about the Osolomio musical motif and then this Madame Colette, the Colette and Company perfume yeah. song yeah. is fantastic and really takes us into this new world of Paris and gives us this great, you know, high low thing between Venice and now this. Kay Francis, she is just delightful in this mm-hmm. movie. I, I love her so oh, much. Oh, I love her so much. Nobody wears clothes like Kay Francis. Oh, she's gorgeous she's so and beautiful. elegant. Yeah. But she beams. She pretty much beams. Yeah. Throughout. yeah. She's just a lovely person. Is it her best role? I haven't seen enough of her I mean, stuff yeah. to, to say that. I love her in this film called The Keyhole with George Brents. She's great in One Way Passage with William Powell. I don't know if I would call her her best role, but I mean, she was in some clunkers too. Who wasn't, you know, when you're doing 10 movies a year or whatever, right. but, oh, um, yeah. she's really good in this one called Mary Stevens, where she plays a working mom. Who's a doctor, which is like almost unheard of. Huh. It's one of her best. I would say it's, yeah, one, it's yeah, one of certainly. her best. And she certainly has one of her better wardrobes. More is said about her through her ward- wardrobe mm-hmm. than through her her lines. Really, mm-hmm. she, yeah, she's had the most uh, items in the wardrobe, much many more. Than, <laughs> yes, than really. yeah. I jotted down. Travis Benton did the gowns. Uh-huh. Yes, mm-hmm. for what it's yeah, like. and he's yeah. a pro. Mm-hmm. There are so many moments where, you know, I just talked about how we moved from Venice to Paris and in between there, there's a little bit of a, uh, well, actually, I think it's right after that when uh, she gets her purse stolen. I think that's when we find out more about the life bet- that Lily and Gaston have been having. So we have this whole idea of uh, compressing time and we get that so many times through this film, especially the use of the montages I find fascinating and, yeah. and especially those two sets where we have people saying yes and no to Madame Colette. I really enjoy those parts as well. And the clock sequence. Oh, God. It, there's so much to do with time in this. I mean, yes. the five minutes fast on the watch. But yes, the clock sequence, that is one of the best things that I've ever seen. I mean, it, it, or even uh, the the simple thing with the opera where it, it's like the woman singing, I, I love you, I love you. Uh, and then, then the page flips and then I hate you, I hate you. It reminds <laughs> me in those particular moments, I'm more reminded of any other filmmaker aside from uh, Lubitsch of Hitchcock mm-hmm. and it just seems to be th- that idea how can I tell this visually mm-hmm. in an interesting way because right. what's Without, going on right. you who know, cares about the opera that's actually happening yeah. who cares, who cares about the opera who cares about the specific details mm-hmm. of this particular 24 hour period or however long it's supposed to represent well, what we're getting at is we're moving the story along and you kind of got figured out and that's the thing about Lubitsch was that he trusted his audience right. to bring two plus two plus two equals, and the audience naturally thinks, well, six. You know, he trusted them to know that it's six without mm-hmm. having to drag their it's feet six. and go every single detail, no, hit everything. Never any heavy exposition. No. Like he, you know, it. you could have somebody saying, oh, the smell. Right. But... <laughs> You know, you get the idea. Um, You know, like there's nobody coming in and saying, well, this is so-and-so and and he pretends to be this, but he's really a thief. Right. And this is this person and she's really a thief. It shows you. Show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, he has that in common with Hitchcock. They both came out of silent films. Mm -hmm. And if you look at their silent films, everything that's in their talkies 
is in the silent films. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first saw Hitchcock's silence, I was like, wow, it's all there. Almost like when you see Eraserhead with David Lynch, it's mm-hmm. all in there. Right. The rest of his career is just rolling out these themes. Mm-hmm. And then I think with both of them too, there's a, when you guys watched Lubitsch, did you watch The Doll? The I watched The Doll. Okay. Mm-hmm. Same idea. He trusts the audience to figure it out. I like that a lot. And I think that's what ultimately made him popular. Audiences like that were not being treated like a bunch of idiots. Mm -hmm. Or at least uh, what they considered the uh, intellectual city, New York, Chicago, Mm -hmm. Los Angeles. The films were very successful. We're not being patronized. Yeah, and less less successful elsewhere, but still successful uh, overall Mm -hmm. enough. So that that he was had the name above the title, right? You know, it represented something. You weren't going to be patronized. You mm-hmm. weren't going to be condescended to. You were going to be treated like an adult. And the films, you know, therefore you'd go because you could say, "Oh, I saw the new Lubitsch." <laughs> right. You know? I think, one and of I the understood. Reasons, it. Sorry. <laughs> I think one of the reasons why. I got us together to talk about this film was because there was a moment in this opera scene that reminded me of the last film that we talked about together, which was the uh, and And just, uh, you know, the two, the, the two films in contrast with one another. I I found that very interesting. And I have to tell you to be or not to be is like the corridors, right? From Madame de trouble in paradise and to be or not to be, it's like, is it the same corridor? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that same opera house or theater. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. And I watched not nearly as many films as you did for this one, but watched a few films. And I've really found that there's a, a theme of powder rooms in Lubitsch's work. And I found it interesting that that's where Gaston is hiding out during the rest of the opera is after he takes that <laughs> purse that he's just hiding out in the, in the powder room until everyone has gone home. Yeah, you because know, that's even the beginning of that uncertain feeling. There's the saying like, yeah. "There's some place that men will never know about," and then they cut to the ladies' room, mm-hmm. and that's such a thing in uh, "To Be or Not to Be" when all the the guys who are dressed as Nazis go into the powder room, right. the men's room. But uh, yeah, it was nice. This whole thing of of him hiding out there, waiting until everyone's gone yeah. home, and I mean, we can't talk about between her purse and her safe. I mean, you can't get bigger vaginal imagery on screen than those two at this time and especially when he throw the the purse is thrown onto the bed i was just like okay yeah and uh yeah. lily taking back the purse at the end i was just like okay yeah yeah all right that's that's not subtle but you know it we uh it's about saying things without saying things you know the whole thing that you're talking about paula with the code saying things without saying getting things. around it oh know, yeah getting like we don't talk about uh, Francois Philibaut having a threesome with two uh, Italian hookers, right. but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's there. Yeah. That is there. Coming yeah. back to the opera and the purse, mm-hmm. are there any theories about how he might have stolen that purse? It's that's the one. amazing thing. It's that magic that you referred to earlier, <laughs> right? You know, it's yeah. that whole just magic. Yeah, it's just magic. It's, Movie magic. Yeah, <laughs> Herbert, let's move the plot Herbert, along. You don't Marshall have to see magic. it. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they talk about it later on too, don't they? Mm-hmm. And uh, but it doesn't really illuminate the question at all. No. Yeah. no. I find the scene after the opera house scene, after the uh, handbag had been lost or stolen, the next scene where Madame Colette. They've rounded up a bunch of people to, uh, oh yeah, to uh, either bring her a handbag that it's, you it's know. It's very Cinderella esque. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, yeah. Who's yeah. got the Who's got the glass who's slipper? Got the, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that seems to be a particularly loaded scene in terms of being direct about uh, society. Oh, yeah. It's kind of pointed, especially the one guy who seems to be a Bolshevik or something, you know. <laughs> yes. Who does the fooey, fooey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> throws it in her face that that she's so frivolous with her money at that ear at that particular point in, in time, times like the height these. of the depression. Yes, right. And I, so I find that very interesting, just for being there. Mm-hmm. That that thing, and it it seems to fit in with uh, my thinking about how the studios thought there should be something. And you know, this is Lubitsch's decision. I think mm-hmm. he had the final cut on this stuff. He got a very. Uh, you know, his contract was very generous to him. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that that mm-hmm. is partially what he was thinking, too, is that we have to talk about this. Right. We have to address the yeah, depression. The we have to address Economic the whole justice. idea that we yeah. are showing we're throwing up in front of you all this glamour and all this opulence. We have to address this. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find that very interesting that, no, we're going to do it right here mm-hmm. You know, at that point in time. Because up to that point, we've seen like. Uh, a sewer, <laughs> right? Pretty much, these fancy people, well dressed and everything, and mansion. fancy interiors yeah. mm-hmm. and expensive furniture. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you lost a handbag, madame. Yes. And it had diamonds in the back. Yes. And diamonds in the front. Yes. Diamonds all over. But have you found it? No. But let me tell you, any woman who spends a fortune in times like this for a handbag, fui, fui, and fui. I must ask you. The phrase in times like these comes back over and over and over. Mm-hmm. If I was a more ambitious person, I would drop in here a montage of them saying in times, times like, like these. these because, my mm-hmm. God, is that a refrain in this movie? Mm-hmm. And it's also part of the time theme. Exactly. So exactly. It's, it's, yeah. Oh, good point. I didn't even think about that. And yeah, it's just, uh, they, they are constantly bringing that back. And uh, yeah, I love the fooey. Like I said, I watched that uncertain feeling and that's one of Burgess Meredith's catchphrase in there too. Yeah, I saw that was one of the films. Yeah, when see. he's looking at the bad art and you know, fooey, yeah. fooey. Say <laughs> foo. The other thing that I found interesting in here too is this whole idea of, you know, uh, I talk about the, the dichotomy. So of course, you know, the blonde and the brunette here. Um, good girl, bad girl. Good girl, bad girl. Yeah. Which is subverted because neither of them are really no. good or bad. And I mean, this one's a thief, but you know. Right. <laughs> well, you know, actually, the Kate Francis character, Madame Colette, she didn't really come about her wealth. You know, like uh, she's not a self-made woman. Like he's a self-made crook. He made right, exactly. I was going to refer to that. Mm -hmm. The idea that she had inherited her wealth, Mm -hmm. obviously, uh, been with the uh, the the family business. uh, Jerome had been with the family business for forty years or whatever, and so you know the family business has been around a while. So you just Mm -hmm. assume that she had inherited her position, Mm -hmm. whereas Herbert Marshall's a self-made crook. Mm -hmm. You know. (laughs) The idea that that she was somehow more worthy, mm-hmm. she was. She's not really aristoc- aristocratic in nature, mm-hmm. and uh, so you can't really say good girl, bad girl, and this is a worthy person, a non worthy person. Exactly. Lily's hard working at being a crook herself. Right. Oh yeah, you know, she works very hard. Yeah, well, she, <laughs> she finds some different stores money. She, mm-hmm. you can't, I can't be bothered with that. And uh, mm-hmm. this. Um, oh yeah, the way she picks up that jewel that was on the bed and just oh tosses it back in the little box that's filled with jewels. Right. Mm-hmm. And the way that Lily's looking at that, like really, that's mm-hmm. that's what you're doing here. Besides, <laughs> there's a quote attributed to Balzac that all great wealth. Uh, comes from a great crime. 
mm-hmm. at some point. Like at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I see that. <laughs> like in the news today. Almost. <laughs> uh, you said it. I mean, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Projection booth ruined by politics. <laughs> Are you getting a lot of flack? Oh, yeah. You, yeah. Are you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's one of my favorite uh, reviews on iTunes right now is ruined by politics was the headline. Yeah. It's fantastic. I, I do got to tell you, this is an that's aside. Awesome. You might, you might, you might want to add this out. Just think about it. I don't know. I may have even mentioned it at some point or another, but uh, Scorsese has to do the White House. Goodfellas is street crime. Wolf of uh, Wall Casino Street is, is semi-legitimate crime. Right, yeah. yeah. Wolf of Wall Street is uh, legitimate crime. Mm-hmm. And White House is like authoritarian National, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. crime. It's, it's it has to do it. Can, insane yeah. I can hear... I can hear the multiple, all multiple narratives, life. you know, like uh, all my life. I always wanted to be the president. <laughs> oh, God. He's got to do it. Oh. And like De Niro's already played. Uh, oh, Mulder yeah. And... There you go. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Get Matt Damon anyway. in there. Yeah. He's worked with Scorsese, too. I'm here tonight because of a sham, a political con job orchestrated by the Clintons and George Soros. Dr. Ford has no evidence, none. Meanwhile, I've got these. I've got these calendars. The thing that I was find uh, that I watch for in these movies is the way that men and women interact, and especially the way that men feel that they have to change women. And you know, I was talking about that recently on. Um, uh, the uh, the big sleep episode, you know, like wh- what's uh, going on with you? Oh, nothing that you couldn't fix. And Gaston is constantly changing the women around him. He really does that for Madame Colette. He doesn't do that necessarily too much for Lily. Mm-hmm. There's the one point where he pulls up Lily's zipper um, to make her less sexy and to dowdy her up for being a secretary where she's, you know, she's got glasses on. My God, how dowdy is that, right? Um, Isn't that awful? Oh, my God. I know. It's terrible. I was wondering <laughs> whether that wasn't also about the possibility of there having been a love right. scene. Mm. Just before that, because I seem at the beginning of the oh, when he pulls the zipper up, right? Yeah. Ah, good one. It's yeah. more dirty, Mark. Oh yeah, no, and that's the thing. <laughs> Anything that, goes in these pre-codes, yeah. man, because they can't show it all. So right. It's, it's like it's they're going to imply it. I mean, just calling somebody darling mm-hmm. after the code was the signifier. So <laughs> I, I think you're you're talking about it's kind of like a montage sequence where. Uh, He's actually at one point wearing you know, like a training sweatshirt or something. Yes. And uh, Kay Francis oh my stretched her legs back over yeah. her head and she says something to the effect of, is this what you meant? Right. And it's, it's kind of like saying, well, what could he have said? Right. right. I, want you, I want you to bend over backwards for me or something. He's, like it's a – you could – it's a – there's a perfectly uh, legitimate line oh, reading yes. where he's the trainer. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as long as there can be – a clean, clean explanation. A clean explanation. Yes. Then it's an, then it's okay. Mm-hmm. But what would the alternative explanation? <laughs> exactly. that be? Well, we don't have to talk. You know that that you know as long as right. as long as that gets by the censors. Right. That's all we got to do. Almost. So as long as there's a clean right. So like if someone comes to you and says, "Oh my God, what's going on in the scene?" Well, he's her trainer. What were right. you thinking? Yeah, <laughs> your dirty mind. Yeah, it must be your dirty One mind the because in the scene, this is what's happening. Right. What were you thinking? <laughs> right. You could always, if yeah. the censor had problems with it, mm-hmm. you could say, yeah. literally, like, he's, you know, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? Right. Right. Oh, he's, he's, maybe you should censor your mind. Right. right. Yeah. right. It's One a of the censors said, we know there's all this stuff going on, mm-hmm. but we can't prove it. Right. You know, that's, that's about it. I'm just, 
And the other thing is, uh, like you were saying, as far as her bending over backwards for him, is him making her over, even in the very first time that they meet, him talking about her lipstick and the coloring and all this kind of stuff. And it's interesting that he knows better than she does. This man knows better than this woman does what type of powder she should be wearing, what type of lipstick she should be wearing, that she shouldn't be eating so many potatoes. <laughs> and just that controlling nature, I found it very interesting that that's one of the ways that he ingratiates himself into her life is by having those moments of control. And then before we know it, he's controlling Everything, controlling the finances, controlling all of that. You know, she seems to be more than okay with that mm -hmm. because yeah. it's very strange. Yeah. yeah. It's and almost like, number one, that wouldn't work on me. Nobody tells me what to do. If she inherited the business, maybe she sort of felt like, geez, what am I doing here? Right. Like, it's exhausting to have to make every decision yourself. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody that you trust, they turn out to be a thief, but you trust them, starts telling you, making your decisions for you, then that person becomes, you start to rely on them. Mm -hmm. And that's how it works. But it, doesn't it also come down to, to something very basic like Edward Everett Horton or Herbert Marshall? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Or the yeah. major. Right. Yeah, that's or true. the major. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't yeah. seem to occur to anybody that none of the above is she, an option. She's saying, mm -hmm. I may have to make allowances for this guy, but like. Mm -hmm. he, yeah, it's true. He's more attractive than these other guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's more interesting, true. more exciting, mm -hmm. which is interesting because later on in the film, the major and Edward Everett Horton talk, have a sit down and they, <laughs> they refer to Herbert Marshall as being kind of a nice enough guy, but boring. Boring. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He'll Those... never be more than a secretary. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. He says he's her secretary. And she says he's her secretary. But, uh, maybe he is her secretary. <laughs> Yeah, those moments of the major and, and, uh, Philippa are just amazing. And especially when the major just leans over and says tonsils. That is one of the best laugh lines in this whole movie <laughs> for me. And yeah, th those two together, Edward Ever Horton figuring out who Gaston is throughout this film and just that he can't get it, you know, even yeah. to the point where he's putting out his cigarette and the gondola shapes. <laughs> <laughs> ashtray and then those strains of oso lamio just coming up and coming up, and they're so loud at some points it's just like wow you know <laughs> like can't you hear that and i i it's like one of those things where you want him to figure it out but at the same time you don't want him to figure it out so it's a really nice way that lubich is just playing with us this whole time like you know you are so dumb we know better than you do mm -hmm. and why can't yeah. you see this that's another thing he has in common with hitchcock is hitchcock always lets the viewer oh, in yeah. on the secret and so does lubich we always know more than the characters do mm -hmm. and i think that's another reason why he is so popular well yeah hitchcock another example talks. of him taking the audience you know trusting the audience right Hitchcock talks about the whole idea of mystery versus suspense and that whole mm -hmm. thing of like, you know, showing that there's the bomb on, uh, in the briefcase mm -hmm. underneath mm -hmm. the table. As and, opposed to just an explosion goes off. Right. And, and everybody's like, what happened? Right. Yeah. And instead mm -hmm. we're there's in suspense. There's suspense and surprise. Right. Yeah. And with all of these jokes, we are being led down that path as well. And we mm -hmm. know that these 
bombs, quote unquote, are out there to go off. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is so effective is that we, Mm -hmm. as an audience, like you said, he's trusting us that we can figure this stuff out. And we know that these things are happening. So it's a type of suspense. Right. It's like a, yeah, comedic suspense, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a surprise when we find out that uh, uh, Adolf Geron is is, uh, stealing from her. But Mm -hmm. it's not a real big surprise because that's kind of the thing that white collar criminals do is just steal from their employers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I still found it kind of like uh, a little thin there because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he doesn't really offer any evidence to, right. to the audience. True. It just seems to be like, well, just go with it. Yeah. Go with it that uh, I can prove this guy's a crook without actually mm-hmm. <laughs> giving any evidence whatsoever. And sometimes I wonder if he really did know that or if he just guessed at it. You know, if, he, if yeah. again, one criminal can recognize another up, criminal. Mm-hmm. That's true. That is true. Takes but one it, to it's catch based one. upon mm-hmm. just the idea that that he didn't turn him into the police based on his suspicions. Right. And so that doesn't necessarily seem to be strong enough really for mm-hmm. me. He didn't turn me in, so he must be a crook. Right. You right. know, not necessarily. I mean, it's a safe assumption to a certain extent, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really necessarily prove anything. I was wondering if that whole thing of him calling out Jaron as Adolf, you know, in 19, what was this? 19, uh, 32. 32. 32. I mean, it's pre-Hitler, so, but mm, yeah, I think I'm stretching it way too much. Yeah, though. that is. I, I, think, I think it's just the whole idea that calling him by his first name, when his he's, first name uh, lesser. losing the formality oh, yeah. is kind of like losing respect mm-hmm, or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he does say to him, call me Gaston. Right. You know, I know I'm a crook, and I know that right. I know that you know I'm a crook. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call you Adolf because you're a crook. Too. Right? Yeah. It's like uh, I'm no more with this formality stuff. Right. All right, we're going to take a break and play the first part of our two-part interview with Joseph McBride, the author of How Did Lubitsch Do It, and then we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Ladies and gentlemen, this program comes to you through the courtesy of Kone and Company, manufacturers of the most famous perfumes in the world. Remember, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter how you look, it's how you smell. Thank you. Kone, Kone, Kone and Company are makers of the best perfumes. If you and your beloved category permit us to suggest perfumes, Cleopatra was a lovely tantalizer, but she did it with her little atomizer. We'll make you smell like a rose. Every nose in Paris knows Holay and Company. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from 
lovethatalbum.blogspot.com From page, page to screen. To screen. So they have nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look, but sometimes it works out and turns out even better. Gregor Fisher, his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually, and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Now that. <laughs> it's about the act and about the writing. That's really what theatre is for me. Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. Never mind. There's a joke for the oldies. Um, oh, be like, who's Prince? Who's oh, he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys. Going right, okay. So you're a psycho, right? Can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker, and Stitcher and put in the search box from page to screen. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV. And you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. Joseph McRide, you've written pretty substantial biographies of so many different directors. And I'm very curious how you decided to go about tackling Ernst Lubitsch as your next subject. Yeah, I'm working on one on Billy Wilder now, who's Lubitsch's most famous protege and uh, admirer. And uh, so it seems like an impression. Uh, Lubitsch, I started in uh, 2010, so it took about nine years. Well, actually, 2009, and I finished in 2018. But I did a lot in between, had books coming out, and I'm te- I teach full-time and other things. Lubitsch was always a huge favorite of mine. I guess, you know, it sort of goes back to when I wrote my first book when I was 15. I started, uh, I did a book on baseball slang. And I was a huge baseball fan. I was reading books on baseball, and I was going to Milwaukee Braves games all the time when they had a great team with Henry Aaron and Warren Spahn and great people. And I was even working at the ballpark to put myself through school. But I was um, bothered by the fact there was no book on baseball slang, and I wanted to read one. So I thought, well, okay, I'll write one. And that's kind of an impulse I think authors often start from. You want to read the book, and then you can't find it. So I began my research, and there had been a uh, thesis a guy did on the subject, and I got a hold of that, and there was a little pamphlet published on baseball nicknames that was long out of print, and I got a hold of that, and that was about it. Since then, there have been other books. My book was published in 1980. It took three years to write. It kept me out of trouble in high school. Uh, I wrote it in the summers and college, actually. Uh, it came out, it was called High and Inside, the complete guide to baseball slang. Yeah, I couldn't sell it at first, and then my father kept nagging me to get it out. So finally, uh, in the late seventies, I decided to update it because it needed updating because the slang and nicknames keep changing. And uh, I got it published. Complete guide to baseball slang. I, I didn't really like that subtitle because it didn't purport to be complete. It was more, um, you know, a compendium of the stuff I thought was most interesting and entertaining. So I changed the title. I did it again in 1996. I called it Pine Inside an A to Z Guide to the Language of Baseball. And uh, I have to update that again at some point. You know, this is another thing you learn when you start writing books is there's no end to it. I mean, once you get into a subject, you write about it your whole life, like I'm doing with Orson Welles. But Lubitsch, um, you know, for years, also his films were hard to find in America. 
and they still are to some extent. It's gotten better, but in the 2000s, um, you know, the early 2000s, I think I started thinking about writing a book about him. There weren't a lot of his books, his films um, available on DVD in America or VHS. Uh, there was a Laserdisc set that was good of several films, but a lot were missing. That's been rectified to some extent over the years. There was a great uh, uh, set from Kino Lorber of his German films, but it was only five films in a documentary. And um, uh, a lot of classics have come out on DVD, but there's still a lot of his films have never been released in America. The, the German films, a lot of them, some some have popped up on DVD and some on YouTube even. Like there's one called Cole Hiesel's Daughters, which I would recommend highly. It's a delightful Bavarian sex farce, a silent film, and that's on YouTube. And um, Cole Hiesel's Daughters, just look at it. Uh, you can see I Don't Want to Be a Man and uh, uh, The Oyster Princess. These are just wonderful German films, but there are some that have never been released. So, um, and then some of the American films. Oddly enough, the uh, 1920s American films, which was a fertile period for him, several of them are missing or hard to see. A couple don't exist. And um, Rosita, for many years, was um, almost impossible to see because Mary Pickford tried to destroy it, and it was it was restored by the Museum of Modern Art last year triumphant restoration came out and they've just restored Forbidden Paradise which uh, played at po po uh, Podinone uh, and um, at Podinone, what am I saying? It, and uh, it's coming out in America probably next year. Uh, it's a delightful silent film that was in dire straits uh, and it's not clear why you know the studio Paramount didn't keep uh, good care of it but that happened to a lot of silent films and some of the other ones are uh, um, Kiss Me Again is a lost film, which is at the time was hailed as his best film, oddly enough. And The Patriot, which got a an Oscar nomination for Best Picture, is the only such film that is not in existence. However, parts of it are in exist existence. There's a trailer for it you can see online, and I saw several minutes of it in Germany at an archive, and that's it. So that was part of my frustration. I wanted to just see the film. So I thought, okay, well, construct a book project so I have an excuse to go and see the films. And uh, that's what I did. And, of course, I wanted to write about them to kind of formulate my thoughts and share my enthusiasm. And, and I also felt that Lubitsch was uh, underrated or kind of looked over, overlooked by um, modern scholars and uh, film audiences to some extent, although there are certain Lubitsch films that are very popular, like To Be or Not To Be and Shop Around the Corner and The Nachka. And a lot of people have seen those. But the short answer is uh, when I did my first book on John Ford and my second book on John Ford, I felt he was kind of ignored too. And I would get this terrible stare when I would mention John Ford, this blank look, which is very frustrating for a film lover. People didn't know who I was talking about. And then I would have to explain it, which I got really tired of doing. It's very disheartening. And then I would find that with Lubitsch, and I still do, to some extent, you say, I'm writing a book on Ernst Lubitsch, and they look at you like, what? You know? And uh, so I wanted to rectify that. With Ford, uh, I and some other uh, writers, uh, there have been quite a number of books on Ford in recent years, and uh, I ha I'm happy to say we don't get that blank stare anymore. Most people say, oh, yeah, John Ford, you know. So I'm trying to do that with Lubitsch, and what I'm finding <clears throat> is there are a lot of Lubitsch fans out there, and I'm sure a lot of them are listening here, 
who are kind of in the closet or, you know, hidden away, who just haven't had a chance to talk about his work or see it as often as they would like in archives and places. And uh, the more talk about it, the more films come out and more books are written and the more the merrier, you know. What was the first Lubitsch film that you saw? Well, I saw Trouble in Paradise, um, which is still my favorite. And what was funny, it came out in the late 60s. It was missing for a long time because it was a pre-code film, very risque, 1932 film. And they tried to reissue it in, uh, I think it was 1935, and the Hayes office, the censorship office, was resurgent. In 1934, they tightened the code restrictions, which were loose before that. And so you had to reapply to get the film accepted and they wouldn't allow it to be reissued because it was too racy and that happened to a number of his films Designed for Living was another one so Trouble in Paradise kind of disappeared and then uh, wasn't even shown on television but for whatever reason in the late 60s it came out on um, 16 millimeter, and I was running a film society at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and so uh, we showed that film and I flipped over it and I thought this is a great film and I thought this must be this guy's masterpiece because it was such a perfect film. It's, it's one of those few films that just everything is just perfect and works so well. I was right. I'd seen his masterpiece. I, I still believe that, and most people would say that. It's a perfection of style. He said it was his most perfect film in terms of pure style, he said. And it also has a lot of depth, more than people realize, and it even has a lot of political overtones that have been overlooked for a long time. So I loved it, and I wanted to see more, and I did see a few more over the years. Design for Living, I remember seeing in college, and Shop Around the Corner in Ninochka. But um, I had only seen um, you know, a small number. But when I moved to Los Angeles at the L.A. County Museum of Art and UCLA, they would show Lubitsch films occasionally. I saw The Marriage Circle, which is a great silent film, very probably his most influential film, actually. It helped create the whole romantic comedy genre. And I uh, started seeing the musicals, et cetera. So I'd seen a fair number of them. But, you know, in a selfish way, I really just wanted to see the films. So it got me to go to Europe four times to see the films. And I was paying for it myself. I didn't try to get an advance. Like, I, when I was a freelance writer uh, doing my biographies of Capra and Spielberg and Ford, I... They had to get an advance from a publisher and make a deal with a publisher before doing this because when you do a biography, it's terribly expensive. You know, all the travel and research, you know, it's a full-time job, and so you have to support yourself doing it, which is hard to do even if you have an advance. And I finally found that's impossible. It's just too hard financially. And so I, I took a job as a teacher. I teach at San Francisco State, which I really enjoy, and it keeps me, you know, current with students. and it's nice to have a place to go and talk to people. And, you know, when you're a freelance writer, it's kind of a lonely occupation. But one of the good things about teaching, you can afford to do books on the side without getting an advance. And so I do that now with uh, critical studies. And um, then I sell it to a publisher later. And so Lubitsch, I finished it. Then I sold it to uh, Columbia University Press, which has done an excellent job of getting it around, getting it um reviewed it's gotten a lot of great reviews and things you know so it's a very satisfying experience you mentioned his uh u.s period or his his american films in the 1920s a lot of times when we talk about german filmmakers or european filmmakers there was the emigration when the nazis took over but it sounds like he came over before that yeah he was uh billy wilder did a 
interview with Volker Schlondorf, the German director who did a documentary of him, and they were visiting uh, Lubitsch's grave, and, and Wilder made a kind of a black humor joke like he liked to do. He said Lubitsch didn't have to flee Hitler, who was one of the talented ones who was brought over. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, uh, Wilder was one of the people who fled Hitler, and he was a kind of minor screenwriter at the time, but Lubitsch was a giant director by 1922 when he was brought over by Mary Pickford to Hollywood. And he had been directing since 1913 in Germany and, and um, acting in films. And then he he became famous uh, internationally with his spectacles. Uh, most people don't know. They think of him as the director of comedies, but he did dramas and all kinds of films. But he did big historical spectacles that were very impressive uh, and actually broke the barrier against German films being shown in the U.S. after World War One. There was a lot of anti-German sentiment, but uh, his film uh, Madame du Berry about the French Revolution, which was retitled Passion in the United States, was the film that broke that taboo. And um, they had to do some fancy footwork in uh, the press. They didn't mention his nationality, and uh, sometimes they said he was a Russian or Romanian or something, Polish, even. Poland Negri was the star. She was Polish, and so they were able to promote her, and uh, sometimes they just say, you know, European star, continental star, or whatever. And there was still some backlash against some of the German films, but uh, gradually people realized the German industry was very vital, and, you know, in the 20s, the Germans really dominated to some extent. Hollywood had a great period, too, but Germany led the way in some ways. Uh, Lubitsch and uh, Fritz Lang and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the German Expressionist films, uh, and Murnau, really were innovative and adventurous filmmakers who influenced the whole world. So Lubitsch was imported. He also made Anna Boleyn, The Wife of Pharaoh, which were imported for American consumption. Those were all the big spectacles. Before that, he had made Carmen, which was a spectacle, but on a smaller scale. And so his his funny German films didn't really translate, they thought, to the, the American market. They do, I mean, because if you like foreign films, uh, they're easy to relate to. Uh, you know, Cole Hiesel's Daughters is a strange case. People think uh, in Germany, apparently, it's too German or too too local humor. Sometimes American comedy doesn't translate to foreign countries. You know, like Frank Capra is not big in foreign countries because he's seen as too American. But to me, that's kind of peculiar because comedy is comedy, and it's about human beings. But there are cultural things about comedies that maybe some people can't relate to too well. And Cole Hiesel's Daughters is very much sort of Bavarian peasant humor, but easy to relate to rustic comedy. It's a sex comedy, after all. But he was brought over, and he uh, was highly regarded. It was seen as a big coup by Hollywood to get him. And then he did Rosita, which was a spectacle. Again, he didn't really want to do spectacles. He wanted to transition to more intimate films. He felt spectacles were losing audience interest, and I think he felt he'd gone about as far as he could with them. But Rosita was kind of a transitional film, and it did rather well at the box office, got good reviews, but she turned against it later, which is a very odd case that I go into in my book uh, in detail. But um, he began soon after that making small-scale films with modest sets on purpose, so he could focus on the characters more, uh, the marriage circle, three women, so this is Paris, etc. And those were the films, Kiss Me Again, films that 
created the romantic comedy genre, codified it. Uh, he, he had anticipated that in Germany, but he really made it work in, in America, and, and many, many people began to imitate him. Was there one particular film that really put him on the map as far as the American films? I guess Rosita made a big splash because there was a lot of publicity surrounding it, and it was a big production, and Mary Pickford was a major star. Very beautiful film. The sets were lavish and photography. Uh, the sets uh, somewhat overwhelmed the star and, and the story, and that could have been one of her problems with it. But she's very charming in the film. I'd say The Marriage Circle was the one that really was the breakthrough for him in terms of his individual style that was special. It's it's a um, comedy set in Vienna. Almost all of his American films are set in Europe. And I think one reason he did that is to get around censorship, which he spent his whole career playing a game with censors, trying to uh, get in as much adult, sophisticated content as he could. And out with them, and that was part of the fun of the films is how he's saying things without saying them, as he told his screenwriter Samson Rickleson, he would say, how did he say this without saying it? And that was part of his style, and his, what he enjoyed was innuendo and uh, circumlocution, And uh, but you really knew, as he, he once said, even a child could understand the Lubitsch touch. Uh, although it was very sophisticated in terms of style, and one of the censors said, you know, uh, He's hard to censor because you know what he's saying, but you don't know how he's saying it. He would do visual things or sometimes verbal things and that would be um, implying racy sexual content without saying it in a censorable way. And so the marriage circle is full of that. It's set in Vienna, contemporary Vienna, and it's about a uh, psychiatrist. He's sort of making fun of the current vogue for psychiatrists and his partner and um the main psychiatrist played by Monty Blue, his wife played by uh, Florence Vidor. They have what seems to be a devoted marriage, but her best friend, I put that in quotes because she's really not a good friend, she tries to disrupt their marriage by trying to seduce the husband who's uh, tempted. And it's a comedy about marriage, and uh, but it has dark overtones because of infidelity issues. And, and Marie Prevost, who is a comedian, very good, plays the other woman. The man who's the partner of the psychiatrist, he's pining away for his partner's wife, but in a kind of love-learn way because she's not really interested. She's a real lady and she doesn't want to have a romance, but she's flirting with him and that adds a layer of complexity as well. And so a lot of it is the looks between them and Lubitsch, one thing he did that was unusual, he didn't like a lot of inner titles. Those were very common in silent films that you look at some of them today, and they seem to really overdo them, and they hold them on the screen for a long time for the slow readers in the audience, and it's, it's kind of maddening sometimes. But Lubitsch tried to use as few as possible, so the looks between the characters really carry the story, and so so much of it is extremely subtle acting and a very clever staging of scenes, and a very deep film about marriage. It had tremendous influence on other filmmakers like Hitchcock and Ozu, uh, uh, for example, both cited that as one of the most influential films in their lives. And uh, Michael Powell did as well. He was just a young fellow at the time, but he said it was the film that got him interested in filmmaking. And Douglas Sirk was a big fan of that film. And they all cited this as a key film in their their development. And so it, it, it uh, showed the way for people to deal with adult sexuality in American films. And the 20s, the country was 
being liberated to some extent after wars. World War One was a shattering experience, disillusioning for the whole world, and so it kind of swept away the Victorianism of the, the world before that. And so women were being liberated to some extent. Women got the vote in America, and the flapper came in, the, the kind of liberated woman. And, and so American films were responding to that, and Lubitsch was seen as kind of an antidote to the Victorianism of Griffith, who was on the wane at the time. And... Um, he was known for his spectacles, like he made Orphans of the Storm in 1921. And if you compare that to Madame Dubarry, made around the same time, they're both very good films, but Lubitsch is, is much more about sexuality, and Griffiths is very uh, Victorian. Lubitsch hit the zeitgeist more than Griffith did in that period, and that was part of his appeal. Yeah, he talks about how these were silent films, and... The jazz singer, famously, in 1927, seems to open up the doors for sound films. And he's making musicals by, what, 1929? Yeah, he made this astonishing musical, The, the Love Parade, was his first musical. And uh, it's just amazing when you see it today because it's so free in terms of the cinematic medium that musicals, when they began, a lot of them were just backstage musicals where, you know, there would be a story scene and there Characters would come out and do a musical number on the stage and then be another story scene. And that was kind of the format. There's this dreadful film, The Broadway Melody, which won the Best Picture Award in 1929, which is one of the worst films ever to win that award. Really clumsy. Even the musical numbers are really clumsy. And and this was the early sound period when people had trouble using the camera in a more fluid way because, you know, the cameras were in these boxes, literally these big contraptions to insulate the noise because they hadn't figured out yet how to blimp the cameras and, and stop the noise from interfering. So the cameramen were in these sweat boxes and sometimes they'd even pass out. And so they couldn't really move the camera very easily. They A few directors did. Ruben Mamoulian deserves credit. In 1929, he made Applause, which is a musical that has a very fluid camera and integrates uh, story scenes more with the musicals, but it's still a backstage musical. And King Vidar made Hallelujah, which is a pretty amazing film in 1929. It's an all-black musical made on location and pretty free film in terms of the camera work. But Lubitsch's um, use of the medium is extremely clever. Uh, you know, he does all kinds of very funny things with narrative and very inventive ways of staging songs and integrating songs with story. And that's that was really what he did was he integrated the songs with the story scenes in a way that seemed very natural. I mean, it's all stylized, but he didn't just stop the narrative to have a song. It would be, uh, it would flow from the dialogue, and sometimes the dialogue was even done in the form of uh, rhyming and, and singing. But he was he was limited a little bit because he couldn't move the camera a lot, so a lot of the scenes are kind of fixed camera positions. But within the frames, he does a lot of movement. And then by 1930-31, the camera was really free, and he could do a lot with it in Monte Carlo and The Smiling Lieutenant, etc. Those films were very adventurous in terms of style and camera work. And he, he really um, concentrated on musicals for the first few years of sound. It was a clever idea. I think he thought, well, okay, we have a new medium. Let's let's go all out and use it for the most stylized form of storytelling. You've mentioned the phrase, the Lubitsch touch, a few times. And I know that sometimes people say that that's almost an indefinable thing. But here, you having written thousands of words about Lubitsch, I'm curious how you define the Lubitsch touch. 
Yeah, well, the book is called How Did Lubitsch Do It? And that's a takeoff on Billy Wilder's sign that he had on his wall of his office for many years called How Would Lubitsch Do It? And um, uh, he tried to, he said Lubitsch was inimitable. He tried and tried and tried. And he said, you know, the best we can do is maybe a few feet here and there that are like Lubitsch, but he said it's never really Lubitsch. And I, I, in my final chapter, I try to discuss, you know, modern films that have some elements of Lubitsch or, I mean, a lot of directors admire him and sometimes they try to imitate him and usually not too well. But a few films have done so. Wilder's Avanti, I think, is the best uh, example of a film that really does it in the Lubitsch spirit. But it was a flop. It was a very romantic film made in 1972 that deals with... Uh, the younger couple reenacting the romantic rituals of their parents. And uh, it's a real throwback to that era, although very beautiful modern film in, in many ways, but it was rejected by the audience who were into a very unromantic phase at that time. That was Romance was considered a dirty word at that time. Other directors have made some films that capture Lubitsch pretty well. Peter Bogdanovich did it, Long Last Love, which I think is a wonderful film in, in many ways, but it has some obvious flaws. But it was pilloried in 1975, and in a way that was really excessive. It's, it's very beautifully made, but I think it was considered a scandal that he would try to make a Lubitsch-type film. It was set in the 30s, and it was very overtly a Lubitschian film that really scandalized people. Truffaut did some Lubitschian films that were more um, subtle, like The Man Who Loved Women, uh, I didn't realize for a long time that it was very Lubitschian. It's kind of like a remake of Heaven Can Wait, which is a film Lubitsch did late in his life about a philanderer. Truffaut's film is about a skirt chaser, a woman, a guy who chases women throughout his life, and he's writing his life story. And I should have known that was a Lubitsch homage because when I knew Truffaut, he would come to Hollywood, I would see him. And one time he took me and Todd McCarthy into his hotel room at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and he showed us the typewriter where he was writing The Man Who Loved Women, and on the wall above it was a big portrait of Lubitsch. And talk about an obvious clue that I should have gotten. I said, oh, okay, you like Lubitsch a lot, geez. you know, But I, I didn't realize he was writing Lubitschian film. But in answer to your question, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in the book analyzing the Lubitsch touch, and I quote him and other people on it. One thing I did, I found a lot of press releases and interviews with Lubitsch. Paramount did some very good press releases in the 30s where they would interview him. And these were like serious articles where he would be interviewed at length about his style and aspects of his work. And uh, a lot of great quotes. He was very good at analyzing his own work. And then he gave a lot of press interviews that are very thoughtful. And most of those uh, have been totally forgotten until I dug them out of the archives. So I was able to find him reflecting on his art, and uh, he made many comments about his style. The Lubitsch touch, in a way, was a marketing device. It was not, you know, it's, it can be overdone. It's sort of like calling Hitchcock the master of suspense, which I think is a cliche. I wrote a documentary called Obsessed with Vertigo, A New Life for Hitchcock's Masterpiece, and I kept quarreling with the director all the way through. I said, I will not use the phrase master of suspense. And he kept saying, put it in the script, put it in. The, you know? And I said, it's such a horrible reductive cliche. And finally, he forced me to put it in there, which I kind of cringed over. He just had to have it in there, you know. And what does it mean? I mean, it doesn't tell you much about Hitchcock. And But the Lubitsch touch was, Kristen Thompson did a book 
uh, Mubich, in which she tried to trace the evolution of that phrase. And she said she couldn't be definitive, but she thinks it originated in the early 20s in American film criticism when they would start referring to the continental touch that Lubitsch brought to his work as the way it was first put. And then they would call it the Lubitsch touch. And I rather like the phrase in a way because the studio began taking it up and promoting it in trailers and ads and stuff, you know, it became a commodity, which in a way is a problem. But I, I kind of like it because touch has a certain connotation of sensuality, which Lubitsch's films are full of. It implies lightness, you know, and uh, his films have a light way of looking at life generally. And um, so that does say something about him. To kind of define it, it's a form of innuendo and obliqueness, not saying things directly, but through implication. And it flatters the audience, flatters their intelligence. And as Billy Wilder said, most directors will say two plus two equals four, or one plus one plus one plus one equals four, etc. But he says Lubitsch would just say two plus two, and you'd have to add it up in your head. And so a lot of it goes on in the way we look at the films, which flatters us, but it's also Renoir once said in the 60s, long before video games, that films should be interactive. By that, he meant that we should participate in the film. And I think our involvement is much more intense and emotional and personal if we're kind of figuring the story out along with the characters and the director. And that's part of the game Lubitsch plays is let's figure out what's going on with these people and what's going on in their heads. And Trouble in Paradise is the epitome of that because it's a love triangle that's very complex and full of subtle and changing uh, emotional affinities. And a lot of what you understand is nonverbal because, you know, if people, let's say, are infatuated with somebody or cheating on somebody, they're not going to come right out and say it anyway. They're going to do it through implication or through actions or through looks. And that's part of the entertainment and part of the poignancy. And Andrew Saris said that there's a kind of an underlying sadness to the best of Lubitsch touch of melancholia that underlies it. So it isn't just all frivolity. Some of it is pure frivolity, but the best Lubitsch touches have a kind of a poignancy to them. We understand more than is being said, but sound added a whole level to Lubitsch's work like uh, it did for other directors like Hawks and Capra and Ford. The dialogue in their films is terrific and important, as it is in Lubitsch films. And quite often, as we know in conversation, what goes on that's important is between the lines, isn't it? Subtext. And good good filmmaking, good storytelling, a lot of it is subtext. Because I teach screenwriting, and I was a screenwriter for a long time, and if you just come out and say something, it's not very interesting, like, I love you, or, you know, I really don't want to do that, or something that's very... Uh, we call it on-the-nose writing. That's not good dramatic writing. And in real life, people don't do that that much. You know, they're kind of hinting at things or speaking around things because it's hard to confront people directly or you don't want to hurt their feelings or um, you don't know what you're feeling. And there's also a conflict between the conscious and the subconscious, which Lubitsch deals with. And that was a big thing in the 20s with Freudianism and a lot of insights into human nature came out then. And so Lubitsch deals with that. The characters on one level, they're in love with one person, but they're falling in love with somebody else. Let's say, like in Trouble in Paradise, the man is torn between two women who are equally appealing, and he has to navigate the, 
his feelings in this complicated situation and their feelings are affected, of course. And it's all very subtle and that's part of the elegance and and the wit of the films. And so there are many variations on this, but I'd say that's the essence of it is is implication and subtlety rather than hitting you over the head. Lubitsch said the opposite of the Lubitsch touch is what he called the sledgehammer touch, which is hitting people over the head, which is unfortunately what a lot of films tend to do today. When you first saw Trouble in Paradise, that when it was over, you're like, this is this filmmaker's masterpiece. Did anything, as you were doing your research, dissuade you from that opinion? Not that I felt that he had made a better film, but he certainly made so many great films. Um, you know, just thinking about his work a lot this semester, I taught a course on him, and the students really uh, love Lubitsch, as they tend to do. Uh, unfortunately, they don't get exposed to his work much today. Uh, in college classes, Lubitsch is not taught as often as he should be. I mean, film history is not taught as much as it should be, and people are very ignorant of film history. Unfortunately, it's getting worse and worse, but they show Hitchcock films more often, let's say, from that period or other directors of that era, but Lubitsch is kind of ignored. But, you know, the range and the quality of his work really stands out when you watch a lot of them in a row. And uh, so, you know, I'm just kind of in awe of a man who made Ninochka in 1939 and then Chop Around the Corner in 40, 1940. And To Be or Not To Be is an astonishing film in 1942. Heaven Can Wait, 43. Clooney Brown, I just showed, 1946, his last completed film. Not to mention all the other wonderful films before that. So he made a number of great masterpieces. In a way, it's sort of idle to say one is better than the other. You know, if it's a film that does what it tries to do, and does it beautifully, like Ninochka is a great political satire crossed with a love story. And To Be or Not To Be is a, is a great uh, black comedy and anti-fascist film. And then you have Trouble in Paradise, sort of the perfect romantic comedy, you know, the epitome of everything the romantic comedy genre stands for. Uh, and Shop Around the Corner is a beloved film for, in many ways, and Lubitsch said that was one of his best films because he thought the characters were truer in that than they were in any other film. So to choose among those four, let's say, would be kind of idle in a sense. But Trouble in Paradise just stands out as just perfection of a certain style. And it's also kind of the epitome of his visual. I, I was going to use the word acrobatics. It's not quite the right word. But he's he, he did some extremely stylized things with the camera and with editing and obliqueness. Like, for example, there's a romantic interlude where Herbert Marshall goes out in the town with um, Kay Francis, who's his employer. She's a rich woman. He, he's a thief, and she doesn't realize that. And so there's this tension. He's there to steal from her, but she, they're falling in love with each other, and she's deceived by him. But the way Lubitsch shows their night on the town, and then they come home, and, and they're doing whatever they're doing in, in her house, it's all done through a series of clocks. And who else would think of doing a scene like that? It's a series of these really beautiful fancy clocks of different styles and you see the light changing over them as as the evening you know gets darker and then at one point the curtains open you see the the shadow of the curtain opening and then you see a clock in the background a clock tower and you hear dialogue off camera between the two of them and there's music and at one point the telephone is ringing because uh Miriam Hopkins who's the um partner of Marshall is worrying about what's going on 
I mean, it's a very complex sequence dramatically, but it shows a lot of things happening, but it's all done through clocks. And, you know, in a subtle way, it shows the passage of time. And it's like uh, in Max Ophel's La Ronde, the characters constantly ask each other anxiously, what time is it? It's been pointed out that that's a theme of Ophel's is the sort of evanescence of time and how constant awareness in the midst of pleasure that our time is running out. I mean, you're going to have to go home or you're going to have to leave your partner or death intervenes or whatever, people break up. And you get that sense of transience from Lubitsch. And so in a lighthearted way, showing clocks is a way of doing that. But it also, just in a narrative sense, it's showing the passage of events through a whole evening. And it allows him to avoid showing the uninteresting parts, people getting in and out of cars or whatever. You know, as Hitchcock said, film is life with the boring parts cut out. So he's able to just focus on highlights that are amusing and interesting, and that's good good art. You know, you've mentioned some of these uh, films of his that really stand out for you, and I'm thinking that almost all of them have been remade, except I can't think if Trouble in Paradise was remade. No, it's been imitated a lot, but not remade. You know, there's no film that's really directly similar to it. There are films about criminals and thieves and, you know, all the different kinds of romantic comedies, but that one uh, hasn't been remade, oddly enough, and I don't know why. I'm glad it hasn't. I mean, I remember I once went to an event that Columbia Pictures did honoring Frank Capra and the head of Columbia at the time said, a large part of my job every day is fending off uh, requests to remake Capra films. He said, every, sing- every single day somebody comes in with, it, let's remake Mr. Deeds Goes to Town or Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And I'm always saying, no, 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 no. And those films have been remade poorly. Unfortunately, they happen to get remade, but not as often as they could be, I suppose. But some, but some Lubitsch films have been remade, like uh, Shop Around the Corner was remade as In the Good Old Summertime, a musical, which I happened to watch part of last night on TCM. And uh, then it was remade as You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks and Nora Ephron film and Meg Ryan, not a very good film. So they tend to be poor, the remakes. The one exception, well, To Be or Not To Be was remade by Mel Brooks. It's a pretty good film, but it's it, nowhere near as clever uh, or stylish as the Lubitsch film or emotionally moving. Part of it is it's made in 1983 and the Nazis were a distant thing from the past uh, and it's easy to make fun of them from a distance or to deal with the Holocaust from a distance but to do it while it was actually happening in 1942 took tremendous courage and I'm just kind of more and more awed the more I think of what Lubitsch did. I mean, he was making in 1941 before Pearl Harbor, so the U.S. was not even in the war. And he's making this frontal attack on Nazism. And he's doing it through a theater trip in Poland. And it deals with, you know, the war started in Poland in 1939. And so it's the early period of the war and how they're outwitting the Nazis in a very extremely clever screenplay by Edwin Justice Mayer. And very audacious. And it's inspiring because part of the point of the film is that Everybody can do something to to stop fascism if you really try and want to. And let's say you're a theater actor, and your whole job is to give entertainment, you can still become a hero and fight fascism. So they use their tools as actors to outwit the Nazis, and it's a tremendously uh, gutsy film. But he got some heat at the time. A lot of people were outraged that he would blend comedy and drama about this very serious subject. And 
Today we're more used to that because we know what black comedy is, but back then it was a very unusual thing to do. You know, I didn't really know much about black comedy until Dr. Strangelove, as probably a lot of us did. And uh, even that, I was kind of thrown by that. The first time I saw that film, I didn't, I have to admit, I didn't get that it was supposed to be funny, but my friend who was sitting with me was chuckling all the way through. Because I, you know, I've been through, you know, during the the um, Cold War, we were all terrified of nuclear war. And in some ways, if you just look at the film, it's dark and it's scary film, and that's how I took it. And then he said, let's sit through it again. And we sat through it again. And, and then I got that it was supposed to be funny, and I was laughing all the way through. So it took a paradigm shift for me to get that. So I can sort of understand the audience of 1942 not getting to be or not to be. The one exception, I'd say, uh, a recent Lubitsch remake that actually is better than the original is a French film called um, France, which came out a couple of years ago. And it's a remake of Lubitsch's film, The Man I Killed, which is a rare Lubitsch flop made in 1932. And it's a serious drama that he did, which he would do occasionally, uh, straight drama. And it's about a uh, French soldier who kills a German soldier in World War One, and he feels guilty about it. So he goes back to the, after the war, to the German town where the young man came from. And he doesn't know what he's going to do, but he wants to make amends for this in some ways. And he gets to know the parents, and then he falls in love with the girlfriend of the man he killed. It's a very kind of disturbing film, as you might imagine, and kind of overwrought. And it doesn't totally succeed. But where it starts to work is when he's falling in love with the young woman which is a rather bizarre situation, of course, but that's where Lubitsch is, he's able to blend romantic comedy with drama there. And it starts to come alive to some extent, but it was a huge flop at the box office. Nobody wanted to see it, and they retitled it Broken Lullaby. So a French filmmaker, uh, Francois Ozon, remade this film. And this is typical. He said when he started doing this, he had no idea that Lubitsch had made this film. <laughs> A lot of people, and you read this in interviews with Hollywood filmmakers, I'm always dismayed. They said, well, I didn't, you know, like, one, who was it? Melanie Griffith didn't know about the Holocaust until she was offered some World War II film. I mean, it's really appalling, the level of ignorance, not just film history, but of history in general. But Ozan had no idea because he was basing it on the play that Lubitsch based his film on, which is a 1925 French play. So then while he was working on the script, he saw the Lubitsch film and he didn't particularly like it. And he was going off in a different direction. And what he does is he focuses more on the young woman, which is a, a good way to do it. And it makes it work better. The young, the young man in the Lubitsch film is a rather uh, distasteful character. Samson Rafelson, who wrote the script, said he was a self-righteous son of a bitch. <laughs> he kept arguing with Lubitsch about this. He said the last thing he should have done is gone near that family. is a horrible thing to do. And it, it kind of forfeits our sympathy for this guy. So, But by focusing on the young woman, it's a more interesting angle. And he also uh, introduces a lot of scenes that weren't in the play or the, the Lubitsch film. And um, so it actually is a better film, you know, which is very unusual. You talked about how that Lubitsch isn't talked about as much as he should be. Do you think that's because people tend to view these romantic comedies as being frivolous? Yeah, there's a prejudice in America, at least. And I suppose in the film world, to some extent, against comedies in general, you know, look at how few comedies get Academy Awards and comic performances tend not to get Academy Awards. And, uh, you know, they, they're overly impressed by drama. And people, part of it is they don't understand acting. 
I mean, what's good acting, what's bad acting. Bad performances often get the awards, especially in the Emmy Awards. You know, if an actor cries and screams a lot, they tend to get an Emmy Award. And that's, to me, not good acting. I mean, anybody can do that. And the more subtle performances get overlooked. And some of the greatest actors of all time never got competitive Academy Awards, like Cary Grant, for example. Uh, uh, you know, Steve McQueen, to me, one of the best American actors. Uh, you know, they get overlooked because they make it look easy. John Wayne, great movie actor. People still don't realize how good an actor was. They say he's just playing himself, which is nonsense, because that, what do they think a star is? You know, a star is somebody who creates a persona and plays it and does the same persona, and we like it. That's why we keep going back to their films. And the good stars, which is most of them, are able to work inflections on their persona. And Wayne did many kinds of inflections on his basic persona, which he constructed. And when he was doing the shootest, somebody said, you're so natural. And he got sort of offended. And he said, well, you know, I'm, I worked very hard to create this character. You know, he said, if, if you're just playing yourself, he told me this himself. He said, uh, if you just play yourself, you'd be the dullest son of a bitch who ever walked on the screen. And his son, his son, Michael said, you know, the people say my father just played himself. It's ridiculous because who was my father? He was a rich movie star who lived in Orange County. You know, did he ever play a rich movie star who lived in Orange County? No. Very carefully molded performance. So comedy is like that. It's, it's, uh, undervalued because it's maybe because it's artificial and it's, uh, but we're a very puritanical country today and even more so than we were back in Lubitsch's day. We're in a very puritanical phase. Anything that gives pleasure in America is suspect. We may enjoy it, but we feel guilty about it and we don't give it awards. And so romantic comedy and romance is suspect uh, in different periods for different reasons. It's seen as frivolous and not as important as, say, going to war or fighting racial injustice. All those are important subjects, but so is love and so so are human relations, you know, and that's what romantic comedy deals with. When it came to working with writers, what was Lubitsch's relationship? Well, he worked very closely with his writers in in the room. He usually worked at home. Billy Wilder said, if truth be told, he said Lubitsch was the greatest writer who ever lived. And he said, I'm not talking about film writers. I'm saying the greatest writer who ever lived, which is quite an amazing compliment coming from one of the greatest screenwriters of, of all time. And Wilder worked with him on Ninochka and Bluebeard's Eighth Wife. So he would work with Samson Rafelson, who was his favorite screenwriter in the sound era. Hans Crowley was his favorite screenwriter in the silent era before they had a falling out. Crowley had an affair with Lubitsch's wife, which is like a horrible echo of Lubitsch's own films. And they stopped working together, and Crowley's career never recovered. But he wrote something like 29 films for Lubitsch, a lot of the great German films and some of the American films. So Brackett and Wilder worked with Lubitsch very closely on Ninochka, for example. Walter Reich had done an earlier script that they uh, used to some extent, and he gets credit to. But they would work, you know, for two or three or four months uh, every day and kick around ideas. And uh, Lubitsch would say things like, um, it's got to be hilarious. You know, it's got to be terrific. Can't be just funny. He said a, a thing I used a lot in screenwriting, which is very clever. He said, Sometimes the best thing to do is just write it boring like in real life and then see where you're going and then make it better, you know? 
that teaches you what not to do in a scene. Okay, here's the here's the conventional way of doing it. Okay, this is boring and this is dull. And sometimes in the plays that they adapted, they're usually based on plays. You look look at them and these situations are handled in a way that seems trite compared to the film, where you'd have some extremely witty way of doing it. Like in The Merry Widow, there's a scene where um, the French consul in Paris, who's a very boring person, gets a telegram from the government at home insulting him. What Lubitsch did was had a servant read it to, to the um, consul, and it's written in code, so they had, had them write the telegram in code, and the guy has to pull a code book out of a safe, and then he decodes the telegram, and it's uh, full of horrible insults, but they're all in code. It's really hysterically funny, and it's all done in one take, and Herman Bing is this great character actor who does it with a funny accent, and it's just a great scene, and um, Edward Everett Horton, who often played the straight man in Lubitsch's films, is the counsel, and that's an example of doing a scene in a different way. You know, it's got to be different. It's got to be hilarious. And uh, how do we do that without doing that? Is another thing he would say. And so um, they would work and work and work. And Truffaut had a moving line about Lubitsch. He wrote a great essay called "Lubitsch Was a Prince," and he said he um, slaved away, worked himself to the death, literally, for 20 years and bled himself white, trying to think of new ways to say things and, and new ways to do scenes. He was a workaholic. He loved his work, but he uh, died of heart attack in the, at age 55, and he had had several heart attacks before that, so he uh, literally worked himself to death to, to entertain us. But uh, one thing that's remarkable on Ninochka, the three other, the three credited writers petitioned the Writers Guild to give Lubitsch a writing credit. I'd never heard of writers doing that on any other film. And, you know, having been a screenwriter, that's the last thing I would do on a film, you know. But the Writers Guild uh, refused, and part of it was they had just won their minimum basic agreement with the studios, and one of the key points was the right to determine credit. And they didn't want directors to take credit and producers and all that. And so that's understandable. But uh, the writers really felt Lubitsch deserved the credit. Another great example people will remember in Lubitsch is uh, Ninochka. When Greta Garbo, who plays this humorless Russian commissar, comes to Paris, she sees a woman's hat in a hotel um, display case. And she says, what is that? And one of the other guys says, well, that's a hat, comrade. It's a woman's hat. And she says, how can this civilization survive which allows women to put things like that in their heads? And she shakes her head and she says, it won't be now. It won't be long now, comrades. And then later in the film, she passes the hat by herself and she stops and she kind of looks at it with curiosity, but then shakes her head again. And then there's a third scene where she shoes them out and tells them to go out in the town and have a good time. And then she closes the door of their suite and she um, locks it and she pulls the hat out of a chiffonier and puts it on her head and sits there and looks at herself in the mirror and that's how it shows that she's been converted by capitalism and luxury and the hat itself is a funny looking hat and but uh, Wilder said they spent literally weeks trying to figure out how to show this woman's change from a strict Soviet commissar to a, a woman who gets interested in pleasure and western values and capitalism and he said, we wrote many, many scenes. It just didn't work. And he said one day, Lubitsch went to the bathroom. And he was in there for five minutes. And he came out and he said, I've got it, boys. It's the hat. That's an example of Lubitsch's genius. And he said, we began to wish that Lubitsch would spend more time in the bathroom. 
because he got most of his good ideas in the bathroom. And then he said we even started to joke that he had a ghostwriter hidden in the bathroom somewhere. You know? But he would come up with these tremendous solutions that would solve complicated story issues. And that's that's the kind of thing you could write 20 pages on, right? You know, of kind of mundane dialogue about her arguing about the hat. Like, you never see her buy the hat, for example. That's an example. Most filmmakers would show her hesitantly buying the hat or something, but you know, it just shows her with the hat, and we can fill it in that she's bought the hat. We don't need to see it. You know. Can you tell me about the role of dunking in Trouble in Paradise? Yeah, there are a couple of gags in Trouble in Paradise where uh, Miriam Hopkins surreptitiously dunks her donut into coffee, or actually it's like a croissant. And then there's a scene later where Kay Francis does the same and kind of looks ashamed, and Miriam Hopkins happens to see her do it, and, and she says, don't tell anybody. And the implication is, and you have to piece this together with another scene, is that Herbert Marshall doesn't want them to do that because it's fattening, I gather. Because at one point he says to her, she says, no potatoes. There's a, there's a montage where he's he's become the secretary for uh, Kay Francis and he's falling in love with her. And how does Lubitsch show their sexual attraction? Well, he shows a series of scenes where Marshall is... Uh, putting her through different kind of rituals of exercise and dieting. And there's one scene that's almost obscene where she's she's doing an exercise and she kind of goes over head over heels and shows her rear end. And I mean, it's very lewd when you think about it. And she says, is this all right? And he says, that's fine or something. But at one point, it just cuts to the maid and the or the cook in the kitchen, and she says, no potatoes? And then it cuts to him saying, no potatoes. And she's then the cook sort of frowns and says, okay. And then at another point, you see Kay Francis sneaking some potatoes, and she again tells Miriam Hopkins, don't tell him. And potatoes are somewhat fattening, as I've learned and since I have been on a diet myself. They're full of carbohydrates. <laughs> so I guess in a sexist way, Herbert Marshall doesn't want his... Uh, women to be uh, plump, you know. So that's the gag. And uh, dunking also had a kind of a connotation in 30s films of kind of low-class manners at the table. It's like licking your fingers or something. And one way we know this is there's a famous scene, and it happened one night in 1934, the Capra film, wonderful scene written by Robert Riskin, where um, Clark Gable teaches Claudia Kelber how to dunk. And he's a working-class reporter and she's a rich heiress and they have to be together and, and they're having breakfast and she doesn't know how to dunk her donut properly in the coffee and uh, he instructs her on how to do it. It's very witty and he says, 20 millions and you don't know how to dunk. You know, It, it shows that she's out of touch with simple pleasures in life because she's a snob. So there's a snob factor involved too that you're not supposed to dunk if you're rich or putting on airs like the Hopkins character has to do to fool people. So that's, that's again, very clever and oblique, and you kind of have to piece it together in your mind what's being talked about. It's really about sexuality and class, which uh, that film is really full of those two themes, you know. But it's, how do you do that? You express it through things like food and manners. <laughs> Thank you.
we're back and we were talking about trouble in paradise. Now, I brought this up to, uh, to Joseph and the one thing that really got me all those years ago, I think it was probably 93 when I watched this the first time was the dunking and the dunking scenes of the two women dunking their stuff into coffee. And I kind of want to go back in time and just look at all of these movies where dunking was a thing because I guess I probably saw it happen one night right around the same time and this whole thing of <laughs> mm-hmm. dunking. And then even I was watching I uh, the shop around the corner mm-hmm. and when uh, the one guy is looking in and, and uh, Jimmy Stewart's date is there at the shop table. Shop Main Street? Stop no, the, shop around the corner. Shop around shop the corner. Around the corner. Yeah. He, he's looking in and, and um, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about um, shop on Main Street later this year for uh, <laughs> Chicktember. I can't see her face. She's sitting behind her clothes like... Uh, is a cup of coffee on the table. Yeah. She's taking a piece of cake. Uh-huh. Yeah. Crawling. She's dunking. Well, why shouldn't she dunk? All right. And that's the nice thing of, of Lillian and uh, Madame Colette is that they both dunk in this film. It's, and it was probably considered a guilty pleasure. Oh, yeah. It's so. so low class. How dare you? But again, it kind of brings up that comedy of manners thing, yeah, you know, yeah. and, that, and the social yeah. roles and the social norms and this whole idea of the one being high class, the other being low class, but then that she can They're truly all the same. go but, into uh, it. Yeah, Manners are important in Lubitsch. Oh, yeah. sure. I, I think it's not necessarily the the – that he necessarily makes fun of them. I, th- I think he, the approach or the sensibility is that if we all can agree on anything, we can all agree on manners. Mm-hmm. We can all agree that there's a base level that is acceptable for people to treat each other with mm-hmm. in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it's not really the specifics of like, do you crook your little finger when you drink tea? It's more like, do we treat each other mm-hmm. well? Right, right. And that's... Listen here, my good man. Now we're both going to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I, in many ways, it may seem archaic, but but I think that the way he does it is it's kind of like a universal language mm-hmm. of manners, basic common decency, and that's the way that we can all understand that that way that you treat each other with basic human decency. The the most practical way you can do that is through manners, mm-hmm. just basically manners. So manners are important, and sometimes. People overdo it. Sometimes people underdo it. But I I think it's just all in all very important. The one thing that I like about these movies is that we are as far from a fart joke as we possibly can be. Yes. You know? Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> that's why it's interesting that, that you wanted to bring uh, Mel Brooks into this. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, that, I mean, I mean... It's, it's appropriate to our next conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're going to get those comedies where we have the very well-mannered people and then the bull in the china shop comes in and that sets up this weird dichotomy. But I prefer that we have – Things being undercut by these two thief characters who come into this world but still adopt the same manners and are as polite to people who are accusing them of being thieves as they are to anyone else. I I really enjoy that, that they can have this respect for one another and have respect for the the people and the world that they're living in. Um, It just – it was very refreshing. And like I said, it just – I want to go back to this whole idea of this movie feels as fresh today as it did in 1932 in that I can be surprised. I, you know, Paula, you mentioned before about when mm-hmm. you get to the end of the movie, you know, it's a new experience even after the fifth, sixth, seventh time that you're watching this because mm-hmm. it just is made so well and can just affect us so much. You know, we feel for both of these characters. We don't yeah. dislike Madame Colette. We don't dislike Lily. We don't dislike Gaston. We want them to have happiness. And that's yeah. one of the, the best things that we can possibly have is at the end of a movie where you're pulling for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think in particular, 
the end of the movie, Kay Francis and Gaston, I'm moving between characters' That's names fine. and movie <laughs> actors and actors' <laughs> names, uh, Herbert Marshall, Kay Francis, uh, they have this moment where they, they accept that it's over. Mm-hmm. And they say they're in a, an embrace, I think. Right. Saying it could have been wonderful. Mm-hmm. It could have been fantastic. And that is so, that's sad. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. It's 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 poignant, even though it's, it's light. It's, a it's poignant, poignant, even though it's light, and that's something that Lubitsch does. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. he's managed somehow to find the light in the in the drama, mm-hmm. and, the drama and the drama in the, the comedy, yeah. right? And be able to merge the two is something that that that's so deft. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I mean, that's really and it's rare. Mm-hmm. It's very rare, and that could be the essence of what is referred to as Lubitsch touch, in a way. You could you could say that throughout the whole thing, all along, no matter what is going on, Miriam Hopkins is going to end up with Herbert Marshall. Mm-hmm. They were made for each other. They were. Kay Francis may have all along been attracted to the idea of being with with mm-hmm. this character who was um, a thief. A thief, but she doesn't really know for right. sure mm-hmm. he's a thief. But he he's suspicious and he has allegations and accusations made at him. Herbert Marshall may have all along been attracted to the idea of living in this uh, san- sanctioned wealth, and but that such attraction is kind of like they're it's kind of like a diversion mm-hmm. that they go both get temporarily very mm-hmm. involved in. But it may be obvious right from the beginning. I, I think that happens in a lot of Lubitsch's films. You have a triangle, many triangles, and there are distractions, but usually you kind of know who's supposed to be with who. Through the course of the distractions is when the people come discover. to reali- mm-hmm. discover themselves and discover right. each other. Mm-hmm. And so that's the process is the plot of the film and what happens in between. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that this is one of the best examples of that, that Lubitsch had um, in his career. What about that scene where they stand by the bed and we see their reflections oh, on the silhouette on the, on yeah. that? Yeah. What might have been... Uh, isn't that that it seems to imply? Yeah, yeah. And that's a beautiful th- yeah. thing because and it's a very striking moment because I, I think you can't do that without like a little bit of like we have to do this type. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, yeah. it's not a throwaway moment, right? It's, and it's a crafted moment. Mm-hmm. So, so you knew that was important that because it requires raising the lights a certain way, getting the camera a certain way, mm-hmm. and so it seemed like a very significant moment. And it's like I can't resist. We have to do this, right? You know, yeah. and it, it's something that I'm sure the censors were wondering, like, what? but you can't do anything about it. It's just silly. Right, what are you going to say? Right. It's, yeah. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. to be is truly an outstanding motion picture, an exciting romantic comedy keyed to an ever-mounting tempo of suspense. To Be or Not to Be brings you the screen's beloved star, Carol Lombard, in the kind of role that won her the applause of millions. And that mirthmaker of the movies, that Casanova of the radio, your favorite comedian, Jack Benny, in something entirely new, something surprisingly different, and it's hilarious all the way. To Be or Not To Be is a swift-moving comedy melodrama enriched by the magic that sparkles in every Ernst Lubitsch production. 
It's the picture everyone will want to see. That's right. We'll be back next week with the second of two episodes about Ernst Lubitsch, where we'll be discussing to be or not to be. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host. So, Paula, what is the latest with you, ma'am? Well, I'm still the co-founder and programmer at Cinema still? Detroit. I know. I just can't get away from it. Uh, and we're located at 4126 Third Street in City, zip code 48201. And we're looking forward to, in January 2019, uh, on the 18th, we'll be opening um, If Beale Street Could Talk. Oh, cool. Which is the latest film from Barry Jenkins, uh, Oscar winner for Moonlight, and uh, based on a story by James Baldwin. So we're really excited for that. Lutz, what are you working on these days? Continuing project is sort of being Facebook answer man for Mark Sofold's questions on Mark Sofold's. Ah, and nice. They do keep coming in. And I'm trying also in that same... Uh, area to get myself ready for uh, an audio commentary for The Exile, oh, nice. which uh, is showing signs of life. It was just screened at the Walter Reed Theater, one of the best theaters in New York, on the big screen, which is wonderful for a spectacle film like that. Oh, yeah. So I'm hoping that'll come. That'll be the last one for me to do on the American films. And Ken, what's the latest with you, sir? I've actually been entrusted to. Uh edit a video for an art installation that will be coming up in January, but I can't give too many details because I'm Ooh. not sure of the participants. For one thing, I don't know if this is going to air before or after ah. that. So it doesn't really make <laughs> sense, but I'm just letting you guys that know that I'm not a good for nothing. Oh, okay, I'm actually good. involved in something. You're not a gad about? <laughs> I'm not a gad about. I try to gad about as much as possible, but uh, uh, not totally useless and I expect that I will be on an upcoming episode of the projection booth. Okay, good. Well, you will be on here next week for sure. <laughs> well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find the links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Call all angels, 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 call all angels. There's trouble in paradise. My turtle dove's taking wings. There's trouble in paradise. The birds no longer sing. Some devil told my angel a lot of lies. Tell her she's the only one Guide her with your lovely light Back into my arms tonight There's trouble in paradise And heaven's not the same The angels sit and cry 
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.